0: Hey everyone, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this of course is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. I have a feeling, given the nature of the series I'm about to review, that this episode in particular will probably end up attracting a fair amount of people who perhaps believe in the paranormal to some extent, or who embrace the concept of an afterlife. So I figured it might make sense to quickly lay out my own worldview before we begin, just so, in fairness, you have some idea where the person doing the reviewing is coming from. You might argue that it should already be pretty clear given the title, An Atheist Reviews (laughs) Surviving Death, but I tend to use atheist as a kind of shorthand, and my individual worldview is perhaps a little more nuanced. Once upon a time, I used to repeatedly say that I tend to eschew labels, but along the way, I've developed the habit of referring to myself as an agnostic atheist. Uh, hats off to Denver Chris, if you're watching this—that's the guy who introduced me to the uh, the term agnostic atheist back in the early day, uh, the early days of the show—and I think it's a label that does a fairly good job of summing up my worldview. Well, obviously, I wouldn't keep using it. But, uh, you know, I'm agnostic because I don't claim to know for certain whether or not things like a god or an afterlife exist. But I'm atheistic because I have some pretty strong doubts. And my doubts grow particularly strong when it comes to man-made religions and their specific supernatural faith claims. And I'm also just skeptical of the supernatural or paranormal in general. I've been fascinated with the paranormal, spirituality, comparative religion, that kind of thing since I was fairly young. And I actually like to half-jokingly credit that interest or fascination for being at least partly responsible for making me a skeptic or a non-believer. Because in my experience, the more you dig into the history of religion, etc., the more you realize you're just dealing with man-made belief systems. And the more you dig into paranormal claims, etc., the more you realize that there's just really not much there in the way of evidence, or what supposed quote-unquote evidence there is tends to be kind of flimsy or unconvincing, often boiling down to other people's anecdotes, and it's kind of left up to you to decide whether you believe or don't. I remember as a kid, I loved watching documentaries on cryptozoology and paranormal activity, always hoping that by the end of the program, they'd actually haul a plesiosaur out of a lake, or provide incontrovertible evidence for the existence of psychic abilities, have a guy locked up in a lab levitate a safe with his mind or something. But nope. Uh, But anyway, all that being said, I do still try to remain at least somewhat open-minded when it comes to all this stuff, as I think any good skeptic should. To me, skepticism is about wanting to know or trying to get at what's actually true. So you don't want to be overly skeptical or so close-minded that you're unwilling to accept what may be valid evidence just because it's coming from the quote-unquote opposing side, so to speak and so i'll try to do my best to offer a fair and open-minded assessment of the claims and anecdotes and supposed evidence presented in this documentary series i'm about to review and when i say quote unquote supposed evidence i'm not you know i i don't intend that as some kind of cheap shot or an attempt to be snarky or dismissive i just frame it that way because i'm trying to keep in mind or factor in what might seem like valid or convincing evidence to some might seem lacking or unconvincing to others. Uh, but enough with the preamble, let's get this show on the road. So Surviving Death is a six-part documentary series that was released on Netflix back in January of this year, 2021 for future listeners or posterity, and it's based on a 2017 book by the same name, written by author and investigative journalist Leslie Keene. And Keen has been a guest on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM. Her interest in the paranormal extends to UFOs as well. She actually wrote a book entitled UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, which was a New York Times bestseller, and I guess the foreword was written by John Podesta. And I'm trying not to get too sidetracked, I've also been trying to avoid politics. But if you're not familiar, John Podesta is a longtime insider, friend of the Clintons. He was Bill Clinton's White House chief of staff and served as the chair of Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. And I think both he and Bill Clinton had displayed an interest in UFOs and trying to discover what the government knew about them. So it makes sense that he would have written the foreword. But at the same time, I imagine there might be a kind of overlap between people interested in conspiracy theories and people interested in UFOs. And I believe, if memory serves, uh, that both Podesta and his brother were painted as central figures in the whole Pizzagate narrative. So I'm just imagining some poor conspiracy theorist picking up the book and feeling somewhat conflicted. Wait, on the one hand, he's trying to uncover the truth about UFOs, but on the other, he's a ringleader of a demonic, cannibalistic child trafficking ring. And in case you couldn't tell, that was just my poor attempt at humor. I don't actually believe in the whole Pizzagate thing. And I don't mean to paint people interested in UFOs as all being wingnuts or conspiracy theorists. And I actually think the term conspiracy theory can be a little problematic, because sometimes there actually are conspiracies. Uh, Things like the Gulf of Tonkin, Operation Northwoods, not to uh, sound like Alex Jones here... And when I was covering the topic of those strange obelisks that kept popping up a while back, and yes, as far as I'm aware, those were all man-made, but still, I said in that episode that I myself believe in alien life, I think it's actually the scientific consensus that, given the infinitely expanding vastness of the universe and how common or prevalent the basic ingredients for life seem to be, that it makes sense to assume that there's life out there. How much of that life is primitive or rudimentary, single-celled organisms or things on par with maybe a sea sponge or something, and how much of it is advanced, perhaps advanced enough to traverse space? I don't know. I imagine there's probably much more primitive life out there than there are advanced civilizations uh, capable of space travel. Uh, As I said in that episode, I'm skeptical that we've been visited just because of the seeming lack of convincing evidence and the technological hurdles that would probably prevent an advanced civilization from reaching us. The distance between stars is so vast, you would probably need something capable of traveling light years, not to mention enough fuel or energy to get you from A to B, Uh, doesn't mean it's impossible. In theory, I guess you could have a civilization so advanced that they possess technology or a means of travel that we either haven't even conceived of yet, or if we have conceived of it, it might just seem like impossible science fiction or some far-off pipe dream. And I think it's safe to say with 100% certainty that UFOs do exist, in the sense that all UFO means is an unidentified flying object. And of course, countless civilians have had strange experiences. Uh, Many of them might have, you know, banal explanations. Uh, But then there's also pilots and astronauts who have seen some pretty funky stuff and who the hell knows what it is. So I think we should take such reports or encounters seriously, and they deserve further investigation. But how the heck did I digress this far already? Uh, But let's get back on track. So anyway, Netflix's Surviving Death was based on a book by Leslie Keen, and Keen actually offers commentary here and there throughout the course of the series. It's done in a documentary style, so there were a number of people who were interviewed for the show, including her. And I get the feeling that she's a believer, at least she seems to lean that way based on her commentary. And up until maybe about an episode and a half in, I felt like the show as a whole was heavily biased and that it really seemed to be pushing for a belief in the paranormal. And I still feel like that's the case in a sense. But there were some refreshing moments that I'll get to where people did seem to voice their doubts or skepticism. And so the first episode in the series focuses on near-death experiences, or NDEs for short. And the first story they cover is that of Mary C. Neal, an orthopedic spine surgeon who had a near-death experience back in 1999 after being gravely injured in a kayaking accident in Chile. I believe according to her account that she went over a waterfall and ended up pinned to or under her own boat while submerged under about 10 feet of water. She recalls, despite being able to feel her own bones breaking, I believe she ended up with two broken legs, that she felt no fear or panic or pain, and in fact, as she describes it, felt more alive than ever. And I want to stop to say that I have no reason to doubt her sincerity, and with maybe the exception of a couple of these supposed psychic mediums, I thought most of the people interviewed for the series seemed pretty genuine. I might doubt whether or not they actually experienced anything supernatural, but I think nevertheless they seem like decent people who are coming from a sincere place. We could get into a discussion about whether or not they might be employing a kind of suspension of disbelief on some level, but But they didn't strike me as being dishonest or like they were out to con or BS anyone. They seemed like people who had had some kind of powerful or moving experience that was very meaningful to them. But I thought it seemed a little weird when she described feeling her bones breaking, but feeling no pain or fear or panic, and I'll get to why it struck me that way in a bit, but I think in part this gets us to something my mind kept returning to, a kind of common thread or problem with a number of these NDE stories. It would seem to me that a lot hinges on at what specific point did certain aspects of the story take place, because if the person's having this very profound and vivid experience when there should be no brain activity, then yeah, that's definitely interesting to say the least. And to be fair, I think there are some accounts where medical staff have confirmed or corroborated that a person's near-death experience observations align with what was going on in the operation operating room at the time, when there should have been, you know, no brain activity. And the specific story that comes to mind for me is that of Pam Reynolds, which I'll get to a bit later. But generally speaking, the exceptions I alluded to duly noted, it would seem that if you have someone whose brain is shutting down, going through whatever processes or processes the dying brain goes through, lack of oxygen, the release of different endogenous chemicals or compounds, and then resuscitation and the brain coming back online again, how do you know exactly when A, B, or C took place or whether or not there truly was zero brain activity at the time? I'll get back to the story of Mary C. Neal, but in fairness, I want to mention that the episode on NDEs does include commentary from Peter Fenwick, a neuropsychiatrist slash neurophysiologist. He used to be skeptical of NDEs, but after reading Raymond Moody's 1975 book, Life After Life, I believe he admits at first he thought the quote-unquote evidence in Moody's book was largely anecdotal and didn't think much of it. But after reading it, he supposedly had a patient who had a near death experience, which was very similar to the accounts in Moody's book. This caused him to reevaluate his opinion and started him down the road of studying and compiling NDE accounts himself. And in prep for this episode, I recently went back and re listened to an episode I recorded back in 2017. I believe it's episode 219, and the main focus of that episode is on the reincarnation research of Ian Stevenson. But it really jogged my memory, and a lot of the names I'm throwing around now I also mention in that episode. I might release it as a T-Wid replay shortly after I release this episode, if I ever finish it. It's been turning into quite the task. I've watched the series about three times while feverishly scribbling notes by hand, and then typing them into my computer after while trying to organize everything and make sense of my own chicken scratch. But I thought Peter Fenwick made a couple of interesting points. For a long time, one of the most often repeated proposed explanations for near-death experiences has been lack of oxygen to the brain. I even alluded to it in passing a moment ago, but Fenwick makes the point that a lack of oxygen usually induces fear, panic, distress, agitation. So the opposite of the positive feelings of peace and calm and euphoria, uh, warmth and love experienced by most of those who have or undergo an NDE. And I'm not a neuroscientist or neurophysiologist. I'm a podcaster with a graphic design degree who works construction. So I'm trying to exercise some self-awareness or do humility here. But just as a layman, just you know, spitballing here, it totally makes sense that initially when you start to lose oxygen, especially if you're conscious and aware you're losing oxygen, that you would be panicked, uh, distressed, and agitated. But what about when, you know, you reach the point where you're on the ground, unresponsive, seemingly unconscious? Could lack of oxygen still be playing a role directly or indirectly in some way at that point? Uh, You know, lack of blood and oxygen causing abnormal stimulation of certain parts of the brain, etc.? And I should stop to state that, in fairness, what I've kind of realized while doing my own little amateur research on the topic for this episode is that it seems like no matter what side of the divide you're on, if you're a believer, if you're a skeptic, that uh, it seems like we really don't know for sure what the heck causes NDEs, uh, and that it's pretty much still a matter of speculation on both sides at the moment. But scientists have speculated that damage caused by a lack of blood or oxygen to certain parts of the brain could possibly induce symptoms that mirror features of the classic near-death experience, out-of-body experiences, uh, an altered sense of time, a sensation of flying, meeting or communicating with spirits or entities, the classic tunnel of light phenomenon, etc., And I believe even pilots who've blacked out during centrifuge training have been known to experience some elements of the classic NDE. But on the other hand, scientists like Fenwick, who believe NDEs can't be simply explained away by scientific reductionism, suggest that the idea that NDEs are somehow caused by an oxygen-starved brain doesn't hold water because when the brain is flatlined, there wouldn't be enough, if any, brain activity to produce a near death experience generated by the brain. And in the show, Fenwick kind of criticizes scientific materialists who claim that there must be some part of the brain that's still active during an NDE. I think as Fenwick puts it, to paraphrase, the brain would need to be active and capable of highly organized or ordered activity to produce an NDE, or to produce consciousness in general. If consciousness was, as he puts it, quote-unquote, all brain, and that's, he doesn't believe it's all brain. That's him characterizing the argument of his uh, his opponents or critics. Um as he puts it, quote unquote, all brain. So he suggests that since NDEs seem to take place when there's no brain activity, it can't be quote unquote, all brain, and that this is evidence that consciousness isn't brain dependent, and that it can even survive bodily death. A kind of bold statement or assumption which has garnered some criticism or pushback from some in the scientific community. But once again, as a layman, I think it's safe to say there's obviously a strong correlation between the brain and consciousness. We have this big, complex, multifaceted organ between our ears that's obviously doing something. And furthermore, a correlation between the brain and what we consider to be the self. Damage the frontal lobe, and you can get changes in personality and impulse control. Uh, Damage another part, there goes a certain type of memory or facial recognition, etc. And this is one that sadly a lot of people can probably relate to. But, say, an older family member develops some degenerative neurological disease, Alzheimer's, or some type of senile dementia, etc., and it's as if the self, the personality, deteriorates along with the brain. And as someone who knows something about illicit and prescription substances, you know, there's obviously a strong correlation between brain chemistry and consciousness. Everything from caffeine and alcohol to LSD and DMT, you know, ingest certain chemicals and the result can be a profound alteration in consciousness. So, obviously, consciousness is dependent on the brain to some degree. I've often said that I lean heavily towards the idea that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain, but to play devil's advocate, I guess you can argue, if you wanted to, that the brain might be a kind of receiver or modulator for consciousness. Uh, You know, it acts as a piece of biological equipment that allows consciousness to interface with the meat body, Uh, but that's sheer speculation. But I guess you could go with something like that if you wanted to, you know, try to reconcile the role of the brain with a belief in a consciousness that can survive death. Uh, You'd have to provide me with some more convincing evidence to completely sell me on it, but I guess that's one possible model you could go with. But anyway, let's get back to the NDE account of Mary C. Neal. Almost 20 minutes in, I've barely scratched the surface of her story. So I believe where I left off was um, she described not feeling any pain or fear, despite being trapped 10 feet underwater and feeling her bones breaking. And I don't know if she's stating this as just an observation, or if she's attributing the lack of pain and fear to some sort of divine intervention. I remember growing up and hearing people mention in passing that drowning is supposedly a surprisingly peaceful, even blissful experience. But imagine when you're first realizing that you're in danger of drowning. For many, there's probably a fair amount of panic or a sense of urgency to get up to the surface or keep from sinking at all costs. But once the process really takes over, and you're kind of surrendering to it, consciousness slipping, lungs filling with water, maybe then it could be, uh, you know, strangely peaceful for some people. I tried to read up on it online, and the consensus seems to be that it's peaceful for some and brutal for others, Uh, some even describing the sensation like, you know, your lungs are on fire. Someone posted an excerpt from Sebastian Younger, is it Younger or Unger, but from his book The Perfect Storm on Korra, which I thought was pretty interesting. It's fairly lengthy, a few paragraphs, but I'll go ahead and read it anyway. Here we go. The instinct not to breathe underwater is so strong that it overcomes the agony of running out of air. No matter how desperate the drowning person is, he doesn't inhale until he's on the verge of losing consciousness. At that point, there's so much carbon dioxide in the blood and so little oxygen that chemical sensors in the brain trigger an involuntary breath whether he's underwater or not. That is called the breakpoint, Laboratory experiments have shown the breakpoint to come after 87 seconds. It's sort of a neurological optimism, as if the body were saying holding our breath is killing us, and breathing in might not kill us, so we might as well breathe in. When the first involuntary breath occurs, most people are still conscious, which is unfortunate. Because the only thing more unpleasant than running out of air is breathing in water. At this point, the person goes from voluntary to involuntary apnea, and the drowning begins in earnest. A spasmodic breath drags water into the mouth and windpipe, and then one of two things happens. In about 10% of people, water Anything touching the vocal cords triggers an immediate contraction in the muscles around the larynx. In effect, the central nervous system judges something in the voice box to be more of a threat than low oxygen levels in the blood and acts accordingly. This is called laryngospasm. It's so powerful that it overcomes the breathing reflex and eventually suffocates the person. A person with laryngospasm drowns without any water in his lungs. In the other 90% of people, water floods the lungs and ends any waning transfer of oxygen to the blood. The clock is running down now. Half conscious and enfeebled by oxygen depletion, the person is in no position to fight his way back up to the surface. The very process of drowning makes it harder and harder not to drown. An exponential disaster curve similar to that of a sinking boat. Disturbing yet fascinating, I actually really like his writing style, Uh, and it's funny, I'm a fan of the late great Christopher Hitchens, and I noticed right beneath the excerpt I just read, someone posted an excerpt of Christopher Hitchens talking about his experience of being waterboarded. But now to return to Mary C. Neal, once again, and her near-death experience, so she describes feeling as if her spirit had peeled away from her body and ascended to the heavens. And this is classic NDE stuff, but she described being greeted by these loving beings who were overjoyed to welcome her, and some of which she knew held some personal importance, or that she was personally connected to them somehow. I believe she says uh, one of them ended up being a deceased grandparent that she had never had the chance to meet in life. So they were in this heavenly realm filled with flowers, and they led her down a path. And I believe she ended up in a dome-like structure where she could look down at her body. And she described being able to kind of flip back and forth between her body and the dome-like structure. And it may have been uh, earlier in the story, but she mentions experiencing a shift in time and dimension where all of eternity was in every second. So she's looking down from this dome-like structure, and she can see her body still submerged underwater, physically dead, bloated, fixed eyes, She could see people, I can't remember if they were the friends she had gone with or not, but she could see and hear people trying to perform CPR on her. She had supposedly been without oxygen for 30 minutes. There shouldn't have been any chance of resuscitation, but the resuscitation efforts were successful, and she started to come back, or come to. And she described how she didn't want to return to her body, but the beings in that paradisal or heavenly realm convinced her that she needed. Needed to return. And for some reason I missed this the first time I watched the series, but as she tells it, the guys who resuscitated her put her on top of a boat and kind of carried her through the wilderness because they were in the middle of nowhere removed from civilization, and supposedly when they finally emerged onto a dirt road, inexplicably there was already an ambulance there waiting for them. And so I got the feeling while listening to her that she was implying that the supposed inexplicable appearance of the ambulance was the product of some sort of divine intervention. I remember thinking to myself, wait, if God or some higher power had the ability to make this ambulance magically appear in the right place at the right time, couldn't it have just intervened earlier and have prevented the accident in the first place? And uh, what would be the counter to that? Well, God or providence uh, let it happen because these near-death experiences are life lessons? Boot camp for the soul and all that. It was for her own good or spiritual development. And I'm just imagining some higher power letting you go over a waterfall where you break your bones, uh, drowning under 10 feet of water, um, needing to be resuscitated and dragged through a forest, and at the last minute he's like, okay, I'll throw you a bone. There's an ambulance. And I know I'm probably coming across as kind of snarky or like a wise ass, but I'm actually not trying to make fun of her personally. She seems like a very decent person who went through a very harrowing experience. I'm just showing how potentially, you know, absurd some of this stuff can seem when you stop and apply logic to it. And so, yeah, she had been without oxygen for at least 30 minutes, and at the hospital, the doctor told her husband she probably wouldn't survive the night, but she did, and on top of that, apparently, there was no brain damage. And I was curious about just how long does it take in general before brain death or severe brain damage takes place once a person stops breathing or receiving oxygen to the brain. And from what I understand, following cardiac arrest, the person usually falls unconscious within 20 seconds, and the brain becomes deprived of the oxygen and sugars it needs to function. And from what I've read, optimally CPR should be started within the first two minutes, because beyond that, the risk of serious brain injury increases. After about nine minutes, it's likely the person will sustain irreversible brain damage, and after 10 minutes, it's likely the person won't even survive. And if someone is successfully resuscitated at that point, I guess 8 out of 10 will likely be comatose. Apparently the brain accumulates quote-unquote ischemic damage more rapidly than other organs. Ischemia meaning lack of adequate blood flow to an organ or other part of the body. So being successfully resuscitated after 30 minutes with no apparent brain damage, yeah, that's pretty good. But there are other cases of people being successfully resuscitated after 30 minutes or more without sustaining any serious long-term brain damage. One such case is that of an 11-year-old boy named Alvaro Garza Jr. This was back in the 80s. He was playing on the iced-over Red River that separates Minnesota from North Dakota and fell through. Supposedly he was submerged underwater for 45 minutes. He was pulled from the river and pronounced clinically dead. Doctors used a heart-lung bypass machine to revive him. He needed braces to walk for a while, I think due to damage to his neuromotor skills, because of how long his brain was without oxygen. But he recovered the ability to fully walk without them, and apparently had no long-term brain damage. In fairness, I think in his case, the cold temperature, the icy water, etc., is thought to have played a role in preserving his organs. And there's another story I found via the BBC about a woman in Spain who died and was successfully resuscitated after six hours. But once again in this case, the cold probably played a role. She was hiking in the Pyrenees with her husband, and they got caught in a snowstorm and succumbed to hypothermia. And then there's apparently something called Lazarus syndrome, and it's where someone's been pronounced dead, resuscitation efforts have been stopped, and then minutes or according to some claims, even hours later, the person will appear to auto-resuscitate. Most cases aren't that impressive. Maybe 10 to 20 minutes after someone's been declared dead, they'll suddenly seem to revive on their own, but then ultimately die again shortly after. However, according to an article in Smithsonian Magazine, as many as a third of such patients do fully recover. It's thought that the phenomenon might be underreported due to the embarrassment or legal risks associated with a premature declaration of death. But according to the same article, about a half of all French emergency room doctors claim to have witnessed the phenomenon during the span of their career. And according to a 2012, the year of the mine apocalypse, kidding, study, more than a third of Canadian doctors reported encountering at least one case. But to return once again to the story of Mary C. Neal, uh, and I'm going to try to tread carefully here because we're talking about the loss of someone's child, but during her NDE, she says that she was told that her her oldest son wouldn't live to be an adult. Uh, and I don't think, as she says it, they didn't provide her with a precise date or time, but She believed concretely that, uh, according to what they had told her, her son would not live to see his 18th birthday. And I believe during a family ski trip that she finally got it off her chest and told her son about the premonition. And he didn't seem too bothered by it, and I think it helped her to kind of get that off of her chest. Uh, But sadly, her son did pass but a couple of years after his 18th birthday, and I believe it was in a car accident. So her son did pass away prematurely, but technically not at the predicted age. So what does that mean? Is the prediction technically wrong? Was it close enough to still be considered right? I don't know, and I imagine it's probably in the eye of the beholder. And then at one point, she talks about how doctors, herself being a doctor, tend to be scientifically minded or skeptical, tend to eschew belief in the supernatural, uh, and even that she herself before her NDE would have viewed, and this is a uh, pretty much verbatim, death as death, physical death. Hard to tell what she specifically meant by that, but the gist or impression I got is that she thought death is the end, no afterlife, etc. But that really grabbed my attention because I think it was a few years ago now, but I actually did a whole episode about how physicians tend to be more spiritual or religious than scientists in other fields or disciplines. Obviously, not all doctors or physicians are researchers or laboratory scientists, but in general, I tend to lump medicine in with science or the sciences. And by extension, I tend to, in a sense, consider anyone who practices medicine as a scientist of sorts. Uh, And I found an NBC News article, and this dates all the way back to 2005, about a study that found that about 76% of doctors believe in God, and about 59% believe in an afterlife. A little strange that the amount that believe in an afterlife is smaller than the amount that believe in God. You'd think belief in a God and belief in an afterlife would go hand in hand, and that the numbers should match up. But technically, you can believe in a higher power, and that the same time not believe in or doubt the existence of an afterlife? It seems counterintuitive, but I guess it depends on what you mean by God. You could probably believe in some sort of impersonal God, or something akin to pantheism, the universe as God in a sense, a kind of all-pervading universal spirit or oneness, a kind of cosmic or universal consciousness, like what you find in Eastern religion or philosophy, or one of my favorite comparisons, the Force in Star Wars. You could embrace that kind of concept of God, while doubting the existence of a literal afterlife, or that the individual ego self survives death. And 55% of those doctors polled or surveyed said their religious beliefs influence how they practice medicine. And in fairness, to offer some context, that was a nationwide U.S. survey based on questionnaires mailed in 2003, and only 1,044 doctors were polled. I say only, but it's, you know, it's relative. And then as far as scientists are concerned, according to a 2009 Pew study, 33% believe in God. 18% don't believe in God, but believe, as I was just kind of saying, in a quote-unquote universal spirit or higher power. And so that can be confusing, because for most people, I think God and higher power are pretty much interchangeable or synonymous But you can, as I was just kind of alluding to, have either a personal god or an impersonal god. A personal god would be like one of the many polytheistic gods of the old pantheons we now relegate to that graveyard we call mythology. Not to disparage mythology, I love mythology. It's just my snarky way of saying those colorful gods that people once believed in that we somewhere along the way decided are fake. Uh, The Olympian gods, the gods of ancient Egypt, the gods of the Norse pantheon, Uh, gods if not anthropomorphic in appearance, then at least in character. In that sense, we could even include the Yahweh of the Bible, a self-aware deity with human attributes and possibly even human shortcomings, a jealous god, a vengeful god, a god quick to anger. And just to keep myself honest, I think I stole the graveyard analogy from Sam Harris. But uh, then once again, in contrast to that, you can have an impersonal god. Something like, once again, the Force in Star Wars. If you want a less cheeky example, something like Brahman in Hinduism. And that can get confusing too, because I believe Brahma is the creator god in the Hindu Trimurti or Trinity. Brahma the creator, Vishnu the preserver, and Shiva the destroyer. And then Brahman with an IN refers to the priestly varna or class in Hindu society or Vedic Hinduism. And then I believe Brahman, AN, is kind of like that all pervading oneness, the undifferentiated ground of all being or ultimate reality. And I know I'm bouncing all around, but to get back to that Pew poll, 41% of scientists said they don't believe in either, meaning either a god or a higher power, and 7% don't know or didn't answer. And one proposed explanation for the disparity regarding a belief in God or an afterlife, etc., you know, between medical doctors and, say, laboratory scientists, is the fact that doctors are often in direct contact with patients in life and death situations, people who are terminally ill, etc., and so maybe emotionally or psychologically they tend to turn more to spirituality for comfort, or who knows, in some cases they may have started out religious or With a belief in God and their religious values drew them to medicine. I'm not sure. But she, Mary C. Neal, the woman whose near death experience we've been covering, uh, I know I've been digressing a lot. She goes on to say regarding scientists and their skepticism, and I believe this is verbatim, that quote unquote, I don't believe we know everything. And that takes us back to what I was saying at the beginning of this episode. I believe that we should approach things with a healthy skepticism and a desire to know what's empirically or objectively true, but you don't want to be so skeptical that you close yourself off to potential evidence. But that brings us to the end of the Mary C. Neal story. Finally, only took about uh, almost 40 minutes, and uh, I'm only halfway through the first episode, and I'm going to cover all six episodes, so this is probably going to be an epically long episode, perhaps my longest episode ever. We'll see. But then they also talked to Bruce Grayson, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. And formally, he was also the director of the school's so-called Division of Perceptual Studies. And I remember discussing the Division of Perceptual Studies in that aforementioned episode on the reincarnation research of Ian Stevenson, because DOPS, or the Division of Perceptual Studies, uh, drinking game, was actually founded by Ian Stevenson. And this is from the mission statement on the department or division's official webpage, Founded in 1967 by Dr. Ian Stevenson, the Division of Perceptual Studies, DOPS, is a highly productive university-based research group Devoted to the investigation of phenomena that challenge mainstream scientific paradigms regarding the nature of the mind-brain relationship, researchers at DOPS are focused on studying phenomena related to consciousness functioning beyond the confines of the physical body and phenomena that suggest continuation of consciousness after physical death. And I think it's Grayson who mentions that advancements in resuscitation medicine back around the time of the 1960s and 70s led to an uptick in NDE reports because more people were able to be successfully brought back from the brink of death to report their experiences. And then in 1975, psychiatrist and author Raymond Moody's aforementioned book, Life After Life, came out. The book became a bestseller and helped to generate public interest in the subject of near-death experiences, a term coined by Moody himself. And I'm not sure if it's Bruce Grayson, and every time I say that I think of Batman, because it sounds like a contraction of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. Nerd joke, but anyway. (laughs) Or nerd observation. So if it was Bruce Grayson or someone else, but someone brings up the proposed theory that maybe NDEs are induced by drugs administered during resuscitation efforts or at the hospital, etc. And the same person dismisses the idea by pointing out that drugs used in such situations actually seem to inhibit or prevent NDEs. And I thought to myself, if NDEs are products of the brain, then maybe the drugs in question inhibit them because they're interfering with the chemical processes that produce the experience. So this point he was making seems to concede to some degree that this isn't a purely spiritual experience, that physiology and brain chemistry seem to be playing a role. Unless you want to revisit my devil's advocate point of view, that perhaps the brain is responsible for modulating rather than producing consciousness, So following that line of thinking, maybe drugs could affect the brain's ability to modulate consciousness and potentially inhibit an NDE, but that doesn't mean that consciousness is merely a production of the brain. Uh, I don't know, and once again, not necessarily my position. I'm just trying to be intellectually honest and offer a counter to my own default position. Once again, I lean towards consciousness being an emergent property of the brain, but would be very delighted to be proven wrong. And while we're on the topic, it was interesting, while researching this episode, I found a text on Google Books entitled The Boundaries of Consciousness, Neurobiology and Neuropathology by a Belgian neurologist named Stephen Lauries, I think, L-A-U-R-E-Y-S. And in it, he discusses the theory that endorphins may be at least partly responsible for the positive or euphoric nature of most NDEs, and also notes that the administration of endorphin-blocking agents can sometimes seem to produce hellish NDEs. And that reminds me of a documentary about hell that originally aired on AE or the History Channel, I don't recall, But I love religious documentaries, documentaries on the paranormal or unexplained phenomena, or documentaries on ancient and medieval history, or just on weird and lurid topics. Um, And I watched that particular documentary countless times, and I remember there was a man they interviewed named Howard Storm which is a pretty good name. He was an art teacher, an atheist, and I believe he suffered a heart attack while on a field trip, and he had a really nightmarish NDE. And at the pinnacle, or nadir, depending on how you look at it, of his terror and suffering, I believe he said at that point he was being swarmed by demons, their mouths and claws were on him and in him, Uh, suddenly he had a memory of the Lord's Prayer. And he recited it, and he was saved, and he became a Christian. Uh, The name of the documentary may have been Hell, the Devil's Domain. I'm not sure. I've watched numerous documentaries on Hell. But getting back to this documentary series, Surviving Death. And again, I'm not sure if it was Bruce Grayson, but one of the academics or experts they interviewed, and I should stop to mention, I think all the academics or experts they included are interviewed for the series, were uh, all people who worked for organizations like the Division of Perceptual Studies or who seemed to have an obvious bias uh, in favor of a non-materialistic explanation for NDEs. I don't recall them interviewing any academics who were more reserved or skeptical, and that's what led me to believe that the show was just going to be completely one-sided, But as I was previously saying, they do include some moments where people who have had some seemingly paranormal experiences express their own doubts or skepticism. But once again, like I was saying before I interrupted myself, I don't know if it was Bruce Grayson specifically, but one of the researchers or experts they interviewed mentions how NDEs tend to take place at points where there should be no brain activity, And not being a medical doctor or a scientist myself, I have no idea. You have certain doctors or researchers or experts making that claim on the one side, while others offer more mundane possible explanations for near-death experiences. So it's frustrating. But to quote Jim Morrison, journey we mourn to the nightmare. So now let's move on to the story of Pam Reynolds, and man, I think this is gonna be a long one. I, I know I've already said that. Uh, we're still only on the first episode, and so I've heard Pam Reynolds's Reynolds's account repeated on a number of documentaries on near-death experiences. It's definitely one of the more convincing or persuasive accounts. In 1991, at the age of 35, she underwent this really kind of extreme medical procedure. It was revealed that she had a large brain aneurysm that was affecting her speech and neuromotor functioning, etc. The aneurysm was so close to her brainstem that doctors were afraid she might not survive a surgical attempt to remove it. As a last resort, a neurosurgeon named Robert F. Spetzler suggested a rarely performed surgery known as a hypothermic cardiac arrest. And as I said, it's pretty extreme. They basically shut your body down, you know, they lower your temperature to about 50 degrees. My guess is to help preserve your organs. They stop your heartbeat and your breathing. The lack of circulation causes the blood to drain from your head and brain, making it easier to perform delicate neurosurgical procedures. And I believe the hypothermic cardiac arrest lasted an hour, but altogether, I think she was in surgery for about seven hours. I guess an hour is about the max they're willing to go. Over 40 minutes and you start risking serious brain injury, but they'll go up to an hour if it's a, you know, a life-saving surgery. Her eyes were taped shut and she had air plugs fitted with tiny speakers in her ears that emitted audible clicks that helped the medical staff make sure that she had a flat EEG. And supposedly, despite all this, the taped eyes, the blocked ears, the fact that her body was basically shut down during the hypothermic cardiac arrest, she reported being able to see and hear what was going on in the operating room during this kind of near-death or out-of-body experience she had. And so, to reiterate, this kind of -of out-of-body experience, according to the account, took place during the hypothermic cardiac arrest. She claimed to have been able to see what was going on in the room, as if she was looking from the point of view of being perched on the surgeon's shoulder. Perhaps the most impressive observation is that she was able to accurately describe the surgical tool being used by the doctor or surgeon, comparing it in appearance to an electric toothbrush And uh, describing a case of bits that reminded her of, uh, I think, her father's socket set. I think the interview footage may date back to 2005, but they include footage of the surgeon himself talking about the case, and he seems to think that her NDE is genuine. Uh, Well, I guess generally speaking, NDEs are genuine in the sense that they're a real phenomenon. The question is, are they mere products of the brain or are they actually genuine spiritual slash supernatural experiences that prove consciousness can transcend or exist independent of the physical body? But he seemed very impressed by the fact that she could accurately describe the surgical tool he was using. I believe he referred to it specifically as a Midas Rex drill. And he references the fact that she was technically, you know, clinically dead at the time of the hypothermic cardiac arrest. And refers to her ability to accurately recount details from the operation as inexplicable. Skeptics, including an anesthesiologist named Gerald, I think it's Worley, have suggested that the supposed NDE probably took place during general anesthesia, hours before the hypothermic cardiac arrest took place, and, uh, you know, chalk it up to something called anesthesia awareness. But that would still leave some questions, like at what point were her ears and eyes blocked? Was the drill she seems to have accurately described even present prior to the hypothermic cardiac arrest, where maybe she could have spotted it while well, still only under general anesthesia. Uh, who knows? It is one of the uh, the better or more thought-provoking NDE stories, though. And maybe a final note on that. Maybe it's too cynical, I don't know. But I've also heard certain skeptics try and make the point that the Midas Rex drill looks like a lot of different... Uh, medical implements. So it might not be that impressive of a guess to say, you know, it looked like an electric toothbrush because there's lots of, um, surgical tools or medical implements that have that same kind of general form factor. But finally on to the second episode, mediums. And I have to admit, when it comes to near-death experiences, I do try to approach the subject with some humility and keep the door open a bit, so to speak. But I'm far less patient when it comes to so-called psychics or psychic mediums, but I will try to remain open-minded. And so I think the first medium they show is someone named Sandra O'Hare. They're from Ireland, and I think they're trans, although that's probably neither here nor there. And to be fair, I think she did get a couple of impressive hits, but she seems to employ cold reading. And cold reading is one of those things where once you become aware of it, you'll never look at supposed psychics the same. You've probably all seen examples of this, The supposed medium will be in front of a crowded room, and they begin by throwing out these kind of vague searching questions. Is there someone with a D name in the audience? David, Daniel. And odds are there might be someone with a D name in the audience. Did you lose someone? An older male, a father, a grandfather. And depending on the person's age, if it's someone who's getting up there in years themselves, there might be a good chance that they do actually have a dead father or grandfather. Father. And that's the gist of it. They collect info by asking a series of searching questions, narrowing in and giving the illusion that they mysteriously know more than they should, as if they actually have access to the spirit world, and information is coming through from the quote-unquote other side. And it doesn't always work. Sometimes things get pretty awkward and uncomfortable. The searching questions fall flat and the person being questioned by the medium will politely have to say, no, sorry, no, nothing like that. And the medium will say something like, well, sometimes the spirits of the deceased don't always come through clearly. And there's a couple of moments like that in this series, and I'm actually kind of surprised yet pleased that they left them in. It's so vicariously cringy that it almost feels like you're watching an awkward exchange between two sitcom characters like you're watching the office or Parks and Rec or something. The medium just repeatedly strikes out and the person they're doing the reading for just almost looks visibly uncomfortable and maybe even embarrassed for the medium, but they're you know they're trying to be polite. So there's cold reading, and then there's hot reading. And hot reading, I think it's safe to say, is the more blatantly dishonest of the two. Because I think in a weird way, you could employ cold reading without intentionally trying to be dishonest. The supposed medium could be engaging in the suspension of disbelief in a way as well, you know? But hot reading is when you make efforts to gain information ahead of the reading. Sometimes it can be pretty blatant. I've heard of examples where audience members are asked to fill out questionnaires ahead of time, or sometimes the info is gathered more subtly. People working with or for the medium might try the eavesdrop or even just ask questions or engage in conversation with audience members before the event. And nowadays with the internet and social media, and we'll get to an example of this in a bit, but now a supposed medium could gather information about you from creeping on your Facebook page or just doing a Google search ahead of a reading. But as I was saying, that Irish medium, as opposed to an Irish large, horrible joke, uh, that Irish medium, Sandra O'Hare, had a couple of impressive hits. She mentioned an orange while interacting with someone in the audience, It was supposedly a male figure coming through, and I think she said something like she saw the figure holding an orange, and the woman she was interacting with said, yes, the dead person worked in commodities, specifically cotton and orange juice. And then she seemingly out of nowhere, she got an image of a table made out of books. And I think this is while still interacting with the same person. And supposedly the lady did have such a table, Kind of impressive, doesn't necessarily convince me of the existence of an afterlife, but not bad, but who knows, maybe a hot reading, I don't know. Uh, But that was interesting. And all this talk about hot reading just brought Peter Popoff to mind. And if you're not old enough to remember, Peter Popoff was this televangelist who was exposed by the amazing Randy. And I imagine if you're a skeptic listening to this, no matter what your age is, you probably have some awareness of uh, The Amazing Randy. He, in the tradition of Harry Houdini, was a stage magician, I think technically an illusionist, who admitted that it was all smoke and mirrors, and who made a habit out of uh, busting frauds and exposing charlatans. And so I'll read this bit from Wikipedia. Peter George Popoff is a German-born American televangelist and debunked clairvoyant and faith healer. He was exposed in 1986 for using a concealed earpiece to receive radio messages from his wife, who gave him the names, addresses, and ailments of audience members during Popoff-led religious services. Popoff falsely claimed God revealed this information to him so that Popoff could cure them through faith healing. And it's funny, I just noticed in the next paragraph down, uh, he went bankrupt the next year, but made a comeback in the late 1990s. Beginning in the mid-2000s, Popoff bought TV time to promote, quote-unquote, Miracle Springwater. I was blissfully unaware that he had uh, made a comeback. I wish I could unread that paragraph. Oh well. Kind of reminds me of how another disgraced televangelist, Jim Baker, is still around. Uh, shilling his bonus buckets, basically tubs of slop to get you through the apocalypse. But returning to this documentary series, uh, there's this guy named Mike Anthony, I believe. He seems just like a really kind of likable, unassuming, ordinary kind of guy. And in fact, he has one of those familiar faces where, while I was watching this series, I'm like, he reminds me of like two or three different people I know. Uh, But what I really liked or respected about this guy is that you can tell he really wants to believe. He lost his father and they were very close, but at the same time he has kind of a healthy skepticism, and he doesn't want to believe blindly. You can tell he cares about finding out what's actually true, or so it seemed. And for a while it seemed like he was almost the main focus of the show, over the span of a few episodes, they keep returning to him so often that I thought maybe the series was going to revolve around him and, you know, his personal quest to contact his father. But eventually, the series does kind of move on. And it's funny, you can tell even after having positive experiences, he still kind of keeps oscillating back and forth between belief and skepticism. And once again, I respect that about him. I can relate to that, uh, that inner struggle. And so he goes to do a sitting with a medium named Laurie Lynn Jackson, this kind of youngish, blonde um, woman who has almost like a soccer mom vibe. Uh, Seems like she's doing okay, has a pretty nice place in the suburbs. Uh, But anyway, she begins with a standard kind of cold reading routine. Is there a J name, etc. But she did seem to get at least one impressive hit that stuck with me. She hit on the fact that his parents were divorced but had remained lifelong friends, which is, you know, fairly specific to be fair. And this is what kind of sucks. You don't want to be rude or uncharitable and suggest that someone might have been, you know, deceptive or dishonest. But at the same time, you know, you're trying to get at the truth. And you still have to entertain the possibility that she or other mediums who, you know, score these kind of impressive hits may have possibly have acquired this information or knowledge surreptitiously or beforehand somehow. Uh, Once again, it doesn't sound very charitable, but you can't take it off the table. And at one point, he, Mike Anthony, even quotes Carl Sagan, the old extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence thing. And I'm paraphrasing, but he basically makes the point that what's bigger than the question of what happens to us after we die, whether or not there's life after death. So I guess kind of suggesting that if you're going to claim that there's life after death, or that you can communicate with spirits, it would be nice to have some real evidence. And be Before anyone jumps on me, I know, I know, that Sagan quote is actually a kind of rewording of Laplace. Uh, And so Mike Anthony seems like a pretty reasonable and grounded sort of guy, like I was saying, but he does have one pretty spooky story. I have no reason not to believe him. He strikes me as an honest person. But he tells this story about having a reading with another psychic. And uh, as a kind of test before the reading, he asked his father, who, just to remind you, is deceased, to tell the psychic to mention his hair because he and his father had some kind of ongoing joke about hair. And he claims that it was... Um, It was an alright reading, maybe not that impressive, but as the psychic was leaving, she suddenly turned around and said, Oh, he wants me to mention your hair. So if that's true, that's obviously pretty wild. But again, who knows exactly how it went down, or if there were any other mitigating factors. Could the psychic have spoken to a family member or someone else who may have been present when Mike wasn't around and learned about the hair thing that way? I don't know. And I think in fairness, anecdotal evidence should be viewed as having some merit and should be taken into consideration, and it can definitely serve as a kind of starting point and help to establish or identify certain patterns and kind of lead you in the right direction, but at the end of the day, I think it just doesn't carry the same weight as solid empirical evidence. But still, once again, if that story's true, pretty damn freaky. And so I believe they then go on to interview a man named Chris Rowe, a professor and senior lecturer at the University of Northampton, and I believe it's him that goes into the history of the SPR, or Society for Psychical Research. Apparently, it was founded in 1882, and uh, it's described as being the oldest scientific body dedicated to scientific investigation of paranormal phenomena. And he describes its establishment as having been a kind of joint venture between Cambridge academics and supposed psychic mediums. Some notable members included Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Mark Twain, a philosopher and psychologist William James, who was a founding member of the American branch of the SPR, and apparently various Nobel Prize winners as well. And so the SPR investigated supposed paranormal phenomena, observed seances, that kind of thing. And of course the 19th century, well technically the 1840s into the 1920s, was the height of the spiritualism movement. At the heart of spiritualism was the idea that the living could communicate with the dead, and its popularity led to so-called psychic mediums basically becoming a dime a dozen. And there's plenty of photographs from back in the day that seem absolutely absurd and laughable in retrospect cheesecloth passed off as ectoplasm, supposed ghosts that looked like they were crudely fashioned out of uh, paper mache and images of quote-unquote apparitions that turned out to be nothing more than the result of photographic double exposures. But the show goes on to focus on some modern mediums. One is a Dutch woman by the name of Nicole de Haas, I think it is. De Haas, not du Haast, any, uh... Rammstein fans out there and uh, De Haas, hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right is this kind of petite, almost mousy woman with close-cropped hair and glasses, and she channels these particular personalities. One is named Silver Cloud, and when Silver Cloud is supposedly speaking, she puts on what sounds like a bad Winston Churchill impression. Uh, and then another personality is a young boy named Tommy, and when Tommy is speaking through her, she adopts this high-pitched, almost Mickey Mouse falsetto. And when I was describing her appearance, that wasn't me trying to disparage her or something. I don't think there's anything wrong with the way she looks. It's just because I think the juxtaposition is so funny of seeing this kind of petite mousy person then trying to put on this deep, like Winston Churchill voice, I am silver cloud. Let us begin. Um it's 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 a trip, man. It's far out. And I'm banging my mic all over the place now. What's going on? Anyway, she claims as a child that she saw a vision of a girl buried in her family's garden. I believe that's uh, how the story went. And supposedly later, her parents actually found the grave. Uh, And they talk about the difference between physical and mental mediumship. Physical mediumship involving, well, physical manifestations, ectoplasm, appearing and disappearing objects, levitation... Uh, kind of instruments supposedly playing by themselves, uh, rapping noises, and that sort of thing. Where I believe mental mediumship is more just the channeling of spirits and letting them speak through you, etc. Uh, Could be wrong, but that's the gist I got. And so I think she runs or speaks at these kind of retreats or seminars for people interested in channeling or mediumship. And at one point, she holds a seance that I think was supposed to be a demonstration of what I think she referred to as, uh, specifically as physical mediumship. But I'm a little confused because there was some group singing and supposed channeling, but nothing really quote-unquote physical seemed to take place. But she conducted the event from within a black cabinet with her wrist bound by Velcro straps attached to the arms of the chair she was sitting in. Uh, suppose, I'm saying supposedly, so damn much. Definitely the drinking game word of this uh, very special episode of The Week in Doubt. Uh, supposedly, it's rather common for physical mediums to employ the use of such cabinets, the rationale being that the cabinet allows for the buildup of quote-unquote energy, and the fact that the seance or demonstration of physical mediumship supposedly calls for full dark conditions wasn't lost on me. It was the same with the spiritualist mediums of the 19th century. I'm sure the dark makes it easier to dupe people into believing parlor tricks are genuine spiritual manifestations. You can wrap on a table or lift it with your leg, creating the illusion of levitation. The medium themselves or an accomplice can move objects around, seeming to make them magically appear or disappear or play what is supposed to be a ghostly instrument, that kind of thing. And another thing that jumped out at me that I almost forgot to mention, at one point someone saying how, you know, at the same kind of seminar or whatever it is, that you're not supposed to touch the ectoplasm. It's very dangerous. I'm thinking, yeah, you don't want anyone to touch it because they'll realize it's just cheesecloth or whatever the heck they use for BS ectoplasm nowadays. And there were a couple of other mediums featured on the show. One I'll just quickly mention in passing, his name was Colin Bates, and I think he looked a lot like Varys from Game of Thrones, which I found entertaining. But that's all I really wanted to say about him. Then there was Philip Dykes, and he conducted one of those horrible sittings I mentioned earlier, and by horrible I mean that kind of went off the rails and it was like really almost painful to watch. There was a young Indian man who wanted to contact his deceased father, and the medium just kept striking out. It was, as I was saying, it was very uncomfortable to watch. He did get one hit. He said that his father didn't like people prying into his private life, uh, but that's not very impressive. That probably describes most people. And so this next thing really kind of made my BS detector go off. So they have someone by the name of Mario Varvoglis, or Vavoglis. Uh, my apologies if I'm butchering your name, I imagine I am, uh, and he's at the International Institute of Metaphysics in Paris, France, and he displays a series of molds that were supposedly produced during a séance, or series of séances beginning in 1920. The man who conducted the séance, or séances, plural, was a Polish medium by the name of Frenek Kluski. The impressions were of human extremities, hands and feet, some of them judging by the shape and size, belonging to children. These molds were supposedly created when spirits called forth at the séance, or séances, dipped their limbs into a bowl of hot paraffin and then into a bath of water. The man presenting the molds, I believe there were nine in total, seems to believe in their authenticity and emphasizes the fact that supposedly the molds were produced under controlled conditions, with a number of respected scientists or researchers present. Strangely, a red light was used at the seances. I'm not sure what its exact significance was, or if it in some way may have aided in any attempted deception. At at least one of the seances, a blue dye was supposedly added to the wax in an attempt to make sure that the molds were actually created during the seance and not produced beforehand. According to the story, the same blue dye was indeed present in the molds created that night. Despite the presenter's assertion that the seances or sittings were conducted under controlled conditions, skeptics have pointed out that a number of the seances were held at Kluski's own apartment, and apparently he was never searched. A man named Gustavo Gillet, hopefully I'm not butchering that, uh, a French physician who gave up medicine to become the director of the institute, Metaphysique Internationale, uh... Maybe I should have just stuck with International Institute of Metaphysics. But, uh, yeah, became the director in 1919. Gillet attended 14 of Kloski's séances, including ones where the molds were produced. Gillet took photographs of the molds, which were later published in 1924. Some skeptics have questioned Gillet's effectiveness or competence as an investigator, suggesting that his desire to believe may have made him somewhat gullible, citing that he gave credence to phenomena such as ectoplasm and teleplastics, which have been thoroughly discredited. One theory put forth by skeptics is that the molds may have been created by pouring hot wax or paraffin into a rubber glove. Although some of the molds, Kluski's molds, do seem to display irregularities reminiscent of the swelling or folds you might see when filling a rubber glove with fluid. In fairness, the molds look much too detailed for this theory to hold water or wax. See what I did there? I think a simpler explanation is that Klooski, or accomplices, keeping in mind that some of the molds seem to be cast by a child, probably dipped their own extremities into wax or paraffin. A number of skeptics, including Harry Houdini, managed to reproduce such molds using their own hands, which to me seems a little strange, because duh, shouldn't take a rocket scientist to realize that you can create an impression of your hand by shoving it into hot wax. But on a serious note, I'm actually an admirer of Harry Houdini, and I've always respected how, like the amazing Randy and Penn and Teller who would follow in his footsteps, that despite possessing the ability to fool or astonish people with stage magic, he still had enough integrity to emphasize the fact that at the end of the day, these are just stage tricks. There's nothing supernatural going on here, and he was offended by cons and charlatans and actively sought to debunk them. And I think he was especially offended by people who claimed to be able to talk to the dead. Although he had already been in the habit of exposing fraudulent mediums, when Houdini lost his mother, who he had been close with, he sought to contact her, debunking these fraudulent mediums who he resented for preying on grieving people along the way, perhaps with a renewed fervor or vigor. Before Houdini died, he and his wife agreed that if he passed before her, he would contact her using the secret phrase, "Rosabel, believe. His wife held yearly seances on Halloween, Harry having died on the 31st of October, for 10 years with an offer of $10,000 to anyone who could successfully contact her husband. As you might imagine, all who tried failed to produce the secret phrase or code. But one of the people talking about the Klusky molds on the show, I don't recall if it was the person presenting the molds, but they basically try to write Houdini off by calling him a kind of shameless self-promoter. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, he was a stage magician, I'm sure he didn't mind publicity, but that doesn't mean he was wrong about the frauds and charlatans he exposed, or that he wasn't also driven by principle. But while researching the Kluski molds, I did come across a kind of entertaining anecdote. A Brazilian physician and author named Antonio da Silva Mello, uh, he was also a skeptic, uh, had written a book, the name of which I stand no chance of pronouncing without looking like a fool, and I said was past tense, I'm not sure if he's uh, actually dead or not, I forget. (laughs) Uh, Anyway... Uh, He examined phenomena, or the book examined phenomena, such as faith healing, uh, parapsychology, spiritualism, that sort of thing. Uh, The book was published in Brazil in 1950, and an English translation was released 10 years later under the title, Mysteries and Realities of This World and the Next. And yeah, I think I probably should have taken the fact that the book was written in 1950 or published in 1950 that most likely he's no longer with us unless he wrote it as an infant or he's an anti-deluvian. But I looked it up and yeah, he uh, he passed in 1973. But in the book it mentions an incident where an investigator supposedly asked Klusky to produce an impression of a face but instead they found an impression of what was described as a quote-unquote a large-sized buttocks in the wax. Apparently, Klusky pulled down his pants and sat in the wax or paraffin or whatever it was. According to the anecdote, this was later confirmed when it was discovered that Klusky had suffered from a burnt buttocks following the seance. Hey... Uh, I'm not 100% sure if that story's true or not, but uh, somewhat amusing nevertheless. There were also a couple of fairly high-profile skeptics who had claimed that before his death, Klusky had confessed to being a fraud. Whether this is true or not, I'm not sure. Deathbed confessions can be problematic, because unless there was someone else there to verify or corroborate that the confession actually took place, you're kind of just left with one person's word. I have no reason to doubt these, I guess I'll say fellow skeptics, but I'm trying to be responsible and fair here. And to be honest, I haven't really dug down and really researched these claims that Kluski had confessed to fraud, uh, you know, for myself yet. And then the show returns to Mike Anthony again, and this time they film him and his family partaking in a seance or reading with an English medium via FaceTime. Hey, it's the 21st century, why not? And so the medium, I believe his name is Stuart Alexander, begins channeling, supposedly, the spirit of Mike's deceased father. And it's kind of sad because you can see the family members getting emotional and tearing up. But to me, I'm just listening to this guy, and as far as I can tell, you know, this guy just pretending to be or speak for someone's dead father and putting on this weird raspy voice. I get that they want to believe, but I feel like they might be better off just trying to process their feelings or their loss, and just really being there for one another as a family, and I'm sure they probably are there for one another. But, you know, trying to heal in some way that doesn't involve trying to convince yourself that this stranger putting on a funny voice is actually channeling the spirit of your departed loved one. But then again, hey, even though I doubt that there's actually anything supernatural going on, If they believe it, maybe it can provide some kind of catharsis or solace. But I feel a little funny saying that because I think that's actually something some mediums or psychics say in an attempt to try to justify what they're doing. Hey, even if I'm not really channeling spirits, what I'm doing is still providing solace for people grieving a loss. And so this next part was interesting. Uh, that same medium, Nicole de Haas, does a reading or holds a seance, not sure what the proper term is, for Mike Anthony and his family at the family home of Leslie Keen, the author whose book inspired the uh, Netflix series I'm reviewing here. And I believe this was meant to be a demonstration of trance mediumship or channeling, and they mentioned that with this particular type of channeling, unlike with physical mediumship, the lights can remain on and cameras are allowed. And I'm thinking, yep, that's because there's no supposed physical manifestations involved, meaning there's no physical parlor tricks that require a benefit from, you know, the cover of darkness. With transmediumship, it's just the medium sitting in the chair, quote-unquote, channeling spirits. And so De Haas is seated in a chair and Mike's family is seated as well. It was kind of funny. Mike's brother-in-law is this blue-collar guy with a bunch of tattoos and everything. But he was a bit nervous or apprehensive. I guess he was kind of spooked, no pun intended, by the idea of someone summoning spirits or whatever. With me, ghosts are probably, you know, the last thing I'm afraid of. Real life is horrifying enough. I'm more concerned about bills and not getting in a car accident. Ghosts, I could care less. What are they gonna do, watch me masturbate? Yes, I did say that, but the the way this scene is edited, I'll try to get back on track after that, the way the scene is edited, it makes it really seem like De Haas is just knocking them out of the park. She keeps getting all these really impressive hits, and the family, especially the brother-in-law, just seem, you know, really kind of blown away. And so there was a relative that passed, and the family owns some kind of seafood restaurant, I believe, And she correctly guesses that the deceased person sold and ate fish and that he used to often use the phrase, hook him up. It's something he used to say to his employees when a customer placed an order. And then she correctly guessed that the brother-in-law is into cars and that he specifically has this ugly green car. That's kind of a joke. And then she guessed that a family member who had been a minister had recently passed so this all seems pretty impressive, and once again the family is just blown away. But, and kudos to the people who put the show together for including this, the excitement and wonder kind of quickly fades as the family kind of huddles around after the seance, and realizes that all of this information is available online. Uh, Hook 'em Hook'em Up is on the front of the menu and on the webpage for the restaurant, I believe. Pictures of, or at least a picture of, the green car is on the brother-in-law's Facebook page, I think it was. And the passing of the relative, who is some kind of minister, is mentioned in the obituaries, uh, wherein they identify them as a minister. Uh, So, you probably could have found all that stuff just by creeping on the family's Facebook pages. The internet, keeping it real. And then they return to Laura Lynn Jackson again one of the mediums who had done a reading for Mike Anthony earlier. This time, she's doing a reading for a mother whose daughter has passed. I believe she guesses correctly that she lost a child. And she says, paraphrasing, I get the feeling that this passing was very tragic. And I'm thinking, of course it's tragic. A child died before a parent. That's like every parent's worst nightmare. Well, I guess unless you hate your kids. But... inappropriate humor. Probably the most impressive thing she did during that reading or sitting is she guessed that there was something in the mother's purse that the spirit of her daughter supposedly wanted her to take out. And the mother kind of tearfully produces this pendant she keeps with her daughter's fingerprint inside. And then she says everything a grieving mother would want to hear. You don't need to worry. She's in a place of beauty and joy and love. You're the best mom. She's saying thank you, thank you, thank you over and over again. And of course the mother is so moved and relieved to hear all this, you know? And I'm looking at my notes while I'm recording this, and I see that I jotted down in parentheses, catharsis versus exploitation. I guess that was my reaction to this scene. Uh, So once again, as I was saying a little bit ago, this stuff really does seem to console or offer emotional comfort to people who are wrestling with the grief of losing a loved one. So there's that. But if there's actually nothing supernatural going on here... uh, You know, as I suspect, and the medium is merely creating the appearance that they're able to talk to the dead. And I imagine in most cases, you know, are receiving payment for their services. Then I think it's safe to say that there is some degree of exploitation taking place or that the practice is kind of inherently exploitative in nature. And there may be some so called mediums who really are just full-on charlatans or conmen or conwomen, who know fully well that they don't possess any powers and are cynically and intentionally preying on the grief of others to line their pockets. But I imagine it's often not as clear-cut as that, in that there's probably many, as I think I was suggesting earlier, Many mediums who are kind of engaging in the suspension of disbelief themselves, or who kind of compartmentalize things, there might be a part of them that does believe, or at least wants to believe, that they actually do possess some sort of supernatural gift. And at the same time, they may be, you know, to some degree or on some level, although they may not want to admit it to themselves, kind of know that what they're doing might be exploitative. And for some reason, the memory I had in my head of that moment when the medium correctly guesses that the grieving mother is carrying a certain object in her purse was considerably more impressive than what actually transpired. I remembered the medium specifically guessing that it was a pendant, but I just went back and watched it again. The medium guesses that it's in her purse, but the pendant was actually in her pocket. So then cleverly, the medium moves the goalpost and says, Was it in your purse earlier? The mother, through her tears, confirms that it was. And so to reiterate, the medium never specifically says what the item was, and she guessed the purse when it was actually in, you know, a a pocket of her clothing. And I wonder if this is some sort of go-to cold reading technique she uses. Women carry all sorts of things in their purses, and there's probably a good chance that a grieving mother may have a keepsake of their departed child in there. So make some general guess and then narrow in as you go along, creating the illusion or impression that you're privy to knowledge from the spirit world, knowledge you couldn't know by normal means. Okay, so then we get to the fourth episode of the series, which is entitled Signs from the Dead. Spooky. Uh, The episode on mediums was actually a two-parter, spanning episode two and three. So, once again, the show returns to Mike Anthony, the guy who lost his father and really wants to believe, but is kind of torn because he also has his doubts and is quote unquote plagued by a kind of nagging skepticism. I put plagued in quotes because I obviously think a certain degree of skepticism, as I've stated repeatedly, is a good thing. It shows that you are, you know, that you have a discerning mind and that you want to know what's factually true. So, given his seeming intellectual honesty, he doesn't seem like the type of guy to make up a story, but then again, it was him that had the spooky story about the medium turning around at the last minute and mentioning, quote-unquote, his hair. Put that together with uh, the anecdote I'm about to recount, and maybe there is a pattern of either him having spooky experiences, or of exaggerating, or even fabricating stories. Say it ain't so, Mike. Uh, I don't like saying that because he seems like a decent guy, but that's one possibility. If you want to get at the truth, I think that you have to lay out all the possible explanations, and as unseemly or as personally insulting as it, you know, it as it seems that the story is made up or exaggerated is one possibility. But he discusses how he works, or used to work, as a bartender on Broadway, and supposedly he was at a Penn & Teller show one night, and he mentions how they're known for being skeptics, etc., and he says that at the very moment when Penn says it's all bullshit, uh, referring to the supernatural and all that, He, meaning Mike, spots a butterfly fluttering up around the lights or something like that, and supposedly, uh, butterflies carried a certain significance for him and his dad. And so when he spotted one at that very moment where Ben says it's all bullshit, uh, he thinks it's his dad saying, no, it's real. And then he describes how he was back at the bar where he works, And supposedly, right as he was telling someone about the butterfly experience, another butterfly appeared around the lights, a chandelier, I think, in the bar. And I say this jokingly, but I remember thinking to myself, maybe one possible explanation is the dude just doesn't know the difference between a butterfly and a moth. Uh, But I did briefly try to research if butterflies are ever nocturnal or if they can be drawn to artificial lighting like moths, and I did find an NCIB article that mentions that there are a few studies that have found that butterflies can be attracted or distracted by anthropogenic light sources, and that can throw off or disrupt their natural behaviors. And uh, someone on Quo- is it Quora? Quora, right, started a thread on the subject mentioning that on occasion they found butterflies attracted to their overnight moth traps. But in an attempt to be fair, we still have to keep in mind that butterflies are diurnal, and there's far fewer butterflies than there are moths. So to find a butterfly at night inside a crowded building in the middle of the city, that would strike most people as odd. And if his story is accurate, or if, you know, he was being truthful and it happened twice and the second time, right when you're telling someone about the first time, yeah, that would be kind of spooky. So what are the possibilities? One possibility is that he actually did spot butterflies at night, but there's some naturalistic explanation for it. Animals confused by artificial light whose behavioral patterns have been disrupted, Another is that he wasn't necessarily lying about it, uh, but he saw moths or something flitting about the lights and kind of allowed himself to engage in the suspension of disbelief and read something meaningful into it. Another possibility is that it's just a made-up story. He was lying or fabricated the whole thing. And then I guess the final possibility would be that he did once again really see butterflies at night in Times Square, but they were sent by his dead dad. Uh, who knows? I'll let you decide for yourselves. (laughs) Um, okay, so then there was this case where a woman who herself seemed rather elderly had just lost her mother, and she asked her mother to send her a sign, a cardinal. And supposedly, the day after the service, she and another family member or friend were playing canasta when all of a sudden a bird flew into the window. And you guessed it, it was a cardinal. So they go outside and pick the poor thing up off the ground where it presumably was lying stunned or injured. After holding and petting it for a while, it finally manages to fly away, and as an animal lover, I'm thinking, what the hell kind of sign is that? God or your mother sent an innocent animal flying headfirst into a window? But I think this may be a good example of the whole humans being pattern-seeking animals thing. We kind of have a tendency to want to read or assign meaning to life's little coincidences. Well, I guess little is in the eye of the beholder, to be fair. And I think this is probably something we're all susceptible to, to some degree. Even myself, as someone who tries to maintain a kind of grounded, rational worldview, uh, and someone who tries to, once again, you know, approach things with a healthy skepticism, I still get kind of spooked when maybe, you know, I was just thinking about someone, and then suddenly they text or call. Or maybe I was just thinking about a particular song, and suddenly it comes on the radio, And, uh, you know, I, I do feel that kind of superstitious tug, that temptation to engage in the suspension of disbelief. But when you really stop and take a step back and think about it rationally, think about all the times those coincidences don't happen, All the times you're thinking about someone and they don't call, or you're thinking about a song and it doesn't suddenly come on the radio or whatever. It kind of makes sense that statistically, like a kind of numbers game, that once in a while, things are going to coincidentally line up, and then this superstitious impulse or temptation to read meaning into it kicks in. And I probably shouldn't have to say it, but that's not me trying to look down my nose at others for being superstitious. Like I was just saying, I myself, you know, I'm not immune. And it's funny, I like to keep all sorts of virtual notebooks and journals on my iPad, and I made one as a kind of experiment where I kept track of little synchronicities or seemingly meaningful coincidences, And I noticed that when I would go back to revisit those journal entries with fresh eyes and uh, an objective mind after some time had passed, uh, these events, or supposed meaningful coincidences, didn't really seem all that impressive in retrospect. And the things I do for you guys, I'll actually risk embarrassing myself by giving you a specific example from this virtual notebook I have open. And keep in mind, a feature of this experiment was just to keep track of even minor synchronicities. Uh, So it's not like I thought this was some big event. But anyway, so I was on YouTube binge-watching Star Wars uh, videos. So if you didn't think I was nerdy already, you know, here we go. And uh, specifically, now I'm really gonna seem nerdy, clips of Anakin and Chancellor Palpatine, this is before he was Emperor, uh, from Revenge of the Sith. And even though the prequels, I I know they get a lot of hate, one of my favorite things from Star Wars across all the movies is like the second half of Revenge of the Sith. I just love the dark tone. I love how we really get to see Anakin moving or transitioning from being a Jedi to really going over to the dark side and becoming a Sith. So I was watching uh, videos of their interactions, Palpatine and Anakin. So then I was like, okay, I got my Star Wars fill for the day. Now I'll go watch something else. So I jumped over to Jeff Holliday's channel. And Jeff Holliday doesn't cover fantasy or sci-fi or anything. Uh, He pretty much takes on pseudoscience and exposes or debunks anti-vaxxers, that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, I start watching a Jeff Holiday video, and he quotes the Emperor from Star Wars. You know, he was just making some kind of cheeky uh point by referencing by offering a pop culture reference. And he quoted, uh he quoted Palpatine. And I'm like, whoa, that's weird, you know? But yeah, as far as coincidences or synchronicities go, that's a pretty insignificant or trivial one, but it does show how our minds are kind of hardwired to look for patterns like that and assign meaning to them, you know? But what would be the meaning there? The universe wants me to go back and binge watch more Star Wars videos? But yeah, I have a whole virtual notebook full of crap like that. I think another trivial one is, I was working out while watching Batwoman, Don't make fun of me. You know you think uh, Ruby Rose is hot, too. Anyway, uh, and while I was watching Batwoman, I had a little laptop set up on the same piece of furniture that my TV is on, and it was like cycling news stories, and a Batwoman commercial came on while I was watching Batwoman. And this is embarrassing, but one of the reasons why I was doing that little experiment, collecting or noting synchronicities, is that... um, I was kind of uh, interested in chaos magic. I don't believe in the supernatural, and I was skeptical of the whole idea of chaos magic, but I found it intriguing, so I figured, let's play around with it and see if there's anything to it, you know? And uh, I had been listening a lot to the uh, the last podcast on the left, and they discuss chaos magic a lot. A uh, female friend of mine was telling me about chaos magic, And so I started reading a book for the hell of it just because I I found it intriguing. Uh, Just like I find demonology, you know, intriguing, but I don't literally believe in demons. And one of the practices that they recommended in this Chaos Magic book was to collect synchronicities, like keep a little journal and take note of all these little synchronicities or meaningful coincidences. And it kind of played into my hands as a skeptic, because I was able to go back and, be, in retrospect, go, yeah, there's really nothing there. These uh, synchronicities really weren't that impressive. But anyway, let's get back to reviewing uh, Surviving Death. And I think it was that medium, Laura Lynn Jackson, but at one point she says, and I'm paraphrasing, that spirits love to mess with lights and send animals. And I'm kind of rolling my eyes because things like flickering light bulbs or looking out the window and spotting an animal in your yard are pretty commonplace mundane events, but because you really can't definitively prove it either way, people are free to assign meaning to it. I imagine most of us would probably agree that a flickering light in the kitchen is most likely due to a bit of faulty wiring or a light bulb that needs to be replaced or needs an extra turn. But because you can't prove a negative, you know, how do you prove that a ghost didn't make the light flicker? Well, I guess that's a bad example because you could always find the bit of bad wiring or whatever. A better example might be something like that story we were just discussing, where the elderly daughter uh, believed that her mother, who had just passed, sent a bird to her as a kind of message from the afterlife most likely a coincidence. But you're left with the burden of trying to prove a negative. How do you prove that the mother didn't send a bird flying headfirst into the window? (laughs) Uh, So once again, that gives believers and charlatans room to assign meaning where there probably is none. And then they go into the different kinds of what they refer to as ADCs, after-death communications, The acronym makes it sound all sciencey and official, but they talk about how uh, these after-death communications can manifest as apparitions, sounds, uh, olfactory phenomena. Am I the only one who, as a kid, thought people were saying old factory, and it made me picture a factory with a giant nose on it? Just saying. And also tactile uh, phenomena as well. And a ghost or spirit communicating through smell might sound strange. Well, relatively, this is all kind of strange when you think about it. But an example might be something like suddenly detecting the smell of a departed loved one's perfume, that kind of thing, etc. And I think it was around this time that they, to their credit actually, include a bit where one of the kind of academics or experts they keep returning to throughout the series brings up what I touched on earlier, that we humans are kind of pattern-seeking animals. We seem to be kind of wired to read meaning into things that just might be random occurrences or coincidence. Uh, Skeptic Magazine's Michael Shermer, in his talks and lectures, used to talk about false positives and false negatives. I believe the specific example he used to like to use was, you know, imagine you're an ancient hominid, and you hear a rustling in the grass, and wrongly assume it's nothing, and it turns out there's, it's something, there's actually a deadly snake or other predator there, you know, in the bushes. That would be a false negative, and that kind of wrong assumption could get you killed. But if you hear rustling and assume it's something dangerous but turns out there is nothing there, that would be a false positive. Yeah, you were wrong, but that tendency to be cautious could keep you alive in other situations where there could actually be a predator lurking. So the thinking is, we may be wired with a tendency for making false positives, jumping to conclusions, assigning meaning when there might not be any, because this kind of thinking or behavior may have been evolutionarily advantageous. And I've often wondered if the fear of the dark may at least in part be rooted in a kind of deep-seated fear of nocturnal predators or that same tendency for false positives. We've probably all had that feeling of getting up in the middle of the night and walking through a dark house, and the hair on the back of your neck kind of stands up as you steel yourself to look around the corner, half expecting to see some hair-raising ghoul or something. Uh, Who knows? But human beings and our hominid ancestors were definitely on the menu. I believe it's thought that saber-toothed cats may have feasted on early humans, and I think there's been at least one hominid skull that's been found with holes that match up perfectly with the canines of a certain species of saber-toothed cat. Uh, Imagine being grabbed by the head and dragged into the bushes by a giant cat. That would ruin your day. I'm not sure if saber-toothed cats saber-teeth, plural perhaps, were nocturnal. Uh, There were different types. I know there was Smilodon, uh, the saber-toothed tiger, and I think at least one was actually uh, a kind of marsupial. Um, Anyway, that was a weird digression. Okay, and so getting back on track, or trying. So then Leslie Keen, once again the author whose book was the basis for this Netflix series, She has her own story that she shares in this episode, once again entitled Signs from the Dead. So supposedly during her first reading with Laura Lynn Jackson, Leslie's deceased brother came through and wished her, his sister, a happy birthday. Leslie claims that Jackson was previously unaware that it was her birthday, and then Jackson told her that a red balloon will be the sign from her brother. But you better watch out, because I think a red balloon can be a sign from Pennywise, too. They all float down here. I don't know what that was. Giving myself the douche chills with my Pennywise uh, impersonation. I don't know what that... I think that was supposed to be Tim Curry's uh, Pennywise in my head, but it came out like, uh, I don't know, like a weird Jimmy Durante or something. Um, anyway, and Leslie Keene says at some point after the reading... She was looking out her window and saw four balloons caught in a tree, three red and one black. I'm trying to remember if perhaps the black balloon was supposed to represent death because, uh, you know, it was a sign from her dead brother. I'm not sure about that, but she interpreted this to be the sign that Laura Lynn Jackson had told her about. Now, I actually think that the balloon aspect of the story is the less impressive part. It's a little spooky, but you could chalk it up to coincidence or the whole humans are pattern-seeking animals thing, because she was primed to look out for a red balloon. And uh, then there, you know, here there's three red balloons, not one. I'm not sure if that difference helps or hurts the validity of the prediction. Uh, Do the extra balloons mean Jackson was extra right? I guess it's in the eye of the beholder. And then once again, there's the addition of the black balloon, whatever you want to make of that. To me, the more impressive part of the story was that the you know, supposed spirit of her brother, speaking through Jackson, knew it was her birthday. Uh, but of course, once again, I don't want to impugn someone's character by suggesting that they may have acquired the knowledge in question by surreptitious means, or something like that. But you can't take it off the table as a possibility. It could be the case that Jackson did some basic research on Keen ahead of time, and came across her birthday. Um, wouldn't be hard, Uh, Leslie Keen is a published author, and even if she wasn't, you can find just about anyone's birthday online, you know? And then this occurred to me, and it kind of reminds me of the mysterious ambulance from Mary C. Neal's account, you know? Um, the ambulance, the balloons, there seems to be this suggestion or implication that something spooky or preternatural is going on. You know, did the balloons just materialize or did they get there by some mundane means? Did the ghost brother steer the balloons to be at the right place at the right time so Leslie would see them when she was looking out her window? Did they fly away from uh, the hand of some kid? Oh, shucks, Mom, my balloons. And the ghost takes them and sticks them in a tree. Or the ambulance. I assume the ambulance must have had a driver. You know, was he like, oh, I I can't do a Chilean accent. Like, all of a sudden the ambulance is staring itself to this dirt road so it can be there just in time for Mary C. Neal. Or did uh, an angel place the call that someone needed an ambulance? You know, these are the questions I ask. And then there were a couple of really sad stories involving parents losing their children. And whether you believe the supernatural aspects of the stories or not, you still really feel for them. The first one was the case of the Cain family. They had a son named Gabriel who was killed in an accident involving a school bus. Apparently the parents went to a medium who told them that their son would communicate with them by leaving dimes, or through dimes, something like that. Initially, the father was skeptical, citing how commonplace dimes are. The mother and the couple's daughter, however, had an experience that they found significant. They were at the beach, I believe, wading in the water or something like that, and they looked down, and between them, in the water, they spotted a dime. Uh, Not that impressive as far as these stories go, but they obviously found it meaningful. And I'm not trying to sound or come across as glib, I'm actually trying to be, you know, as respectful as possible due to the profound loss this family experienced. And I want to stop to say, you know, while we're on the subject, that if I knew or encountered a family like this in real life, face to face, No way would I ever question their experience or try to rob them of the comfort that, you know, this kind of experience provides by expressing or trying to impose my own skepticism on them. Uh, In my book, if someone suffers that kind of loss, uh, you do the decent thing and let them believe whatever gets them through the day. But seeing as I have a relatively small podcast, and they'll probably never hear this, you know, let's continue— So as I was saying, the father was skeptical of the whole dime thing, but he was in his office, I think, or some other part of the house, and he thought he heard this kind of laugh or joking noise that his son used to make. And uh, was it in his mind, or did he hear it audibly? Uh, I'm not certain. Um, Then he suddenly found a penny, and the date on it was the year his son Gabriel was born. And he took this as a sign from his son that the son was kind of mischievously playing around and offering a penny with his birth year on it um, when the father was expecting a dime. So once again, not trying to be rude or insensitive, but not the most impressive or convincing, you know, ghost story. And at some point, the father takes up a, a kind of automatic writing, as if his son was writing through him. But the father isn't sure if it's really his son, or it's just him wishing it was his son. So he asks for a sign, and he hears, once again, I'm not sure if it's... uh, I think he says it's in his mind, I believe. But uh, he hears his son utter the phrase, I am red. And the father has no idea what this is supposed to mean. Then I think it's apparent that's connected to the daughter's school, but they take it upon themselves to mail a painting to the family. And it's a picture featuring a kind of reddish spirit figure. I think the father refers to the color as technically being magenta, Uh, But with the painting is a note of sorts explaining that red is the color associated with the quote-unquote pureness of the human soul, especially the youthful spirits of people who have died young, and that red is also supposedly connected to or signifies communication between the living and the dead. And to be honest, I've never heard any of these, you know, theories regarding the supposed spiritual significance of the color red before, but the family, needless to say, found the arrival of this painting to be profoundly meaningful, and um, it, it they seem to have really drawn comfort from it. And then we have the Knight family, and maybe it's my bias as a skeptic showing through, but I found myself feeling a certain fondness for this family because both the parents were kind of, you know, very rational, scientifically-minded people, uh, or at least pretty, you know, grounded, and they described their son Elijah, who they lost, as being the same way. And I believe the father and son really kind of bonded through their shared love or interest in science. Elijah was only 14 years old when he passed. He was away from home on a trip with a group of other kids. I don't know if it was the Boy Scouts specifically, but something like that. They were out in nature, camping, that sort of thing. And there was a bad storm, and a giant tree fell, and Elijah was pinned under it. And there was so much weight on top of him that he was unable to inhale, and he died. Um, And the suffering of these parents is just so palpable. You can really feel the heaviness of their loss. Uh, if that makes sense. And so despite their kind of rational worldview, the parents in their grief kind of, you know, open themselves up a bit more to the possibility that there might be something more out there, perhaps some kind of spiritual dimension to the universe, for, you know, a, a lack of a better way of putting it. And so they show the family at some kind of workshop or seminar, and I think there's mediums there, I think the goal is to help people contact the spirit world. Uh, And so the instructor or the person leading the exercise uh, has the class kind of look within their mind's eye and see what they imagine and to describe it. And she says, and I think this is verbatim, that I don't ever want you to think of your imagination as just that. And uh, this, as a skeptic, really kind of jumped out at me, because it's really giving people kind of carte blanche to believe whatever pops into their head, as if it has some kind of, you know, evidential weight. And of course people are going to think about and daydream about people they've lost, but that doesn't mean that these are spirit communications People are free to believe that if they want, of course, and certainly I wouldn't go and try to burst the bubble of grieving parents who draw comfort from the idea. But, you know, there's no reason to think that what takes place in the imagination somehow translates to evidence. And the, uh, the father does engage in this exercise, and the woman leading or guiding him through the exercise asks him to describe what he sees to the group. And so he describes seeing something like blossoming flowers, butterflies, bees, that sort of thing, for what it's worth. And then there was a really kind of moving moment where the mother is talking about an experience she had. And once again, you can kind of feel the weight of her loss. I mean, as someone who's never lost a child, I can't know the depth of her loss and sorrow. But what I mean is the loss is so profound, it's almost palpable. And it's here where she kind of points out that she has a worldview that's kind of grounded in science, too, kind of like the father and uh, Elijah, and that she doesn't hold any dogmatic religious beliefs or anything like that. And she tells how, despite her you know, having this kind of rational worldview, she had this profoundly moving experience where she suddenly smelled the scent of her son, And I guess this is what believers in the paranormal or spirits would term an olfactory after-death communication. And it's hard to put into words, but there was something about the way she described it that was very powerful. Just the idea of this grieving mother suddenly smelling the unique scent of her missing son. And it was so vivid and powerful and so real to her that she described it as it was if she was inhaling his DNA. And then, and I think she said this took place in her mind's eye uh, with her eyes closed, I believe, but she had a vision or she thought of a door opening and her son being on the other side. And she felt this overwhelming sense of love. And she goes on to explain that although she still maybe has this rational or grounded worldview, she thinks that there may be, you know, a glimmer that there's more to the, to the universe than what we can understand. So kind of implying that, once again, there may be a spiritual dimension to the universe, or there may be room for the belief in spirits, uh, something like that. I totally agree with her that there's probably more to the universe than we understand. When you think about it, we live in a universe that's billions of years old and unimaginably vast, and we're just one species of ape, you know, on a rock in space. Uh, you know, we've only been around as a species for roughly 200,000 years. Uh, that figure kind of varies the, depending on what expert you're talking to. Um, you know, less than a blink of an eye in the, um, you know, in comparison to, to the age of the universe. And we should be proud of our collective accomplishments, you know, going from rubbing sticks together and dodging predators to to launching satellites into space and everyone walking around with supercomputers in their pockets. But we should also maintain a certain degree of due humility and recognize that in a lot of ways we're still, you know, groping in the dark. But yeah, getting back to Elijah's mother, and I'm going to try to tread very carefully here, you know, as powerful and convincing as these experiences were, you know, were for her, it probably wouldn't be a stretch to suggest that her having the impression of being able to smell her son or envisioning her son in her mind's eye in some, you know, really meaningful way that, you know, that these could just be manifestations of a mother's profound grief. Definitely wouldn't say that to her, you know. And i mentioned this kind of lightheartedly. I would never seriously hold this against a grieving parent. But she did do that thing that's kind of a pet peeve for a lot of skeptics, myself included, where someone will kind of borrow or misappropriate that famous and all too overused bit from the uh, first law of thermodynamics to try to justify some belief in eternal spirit energy. And I'm sure you're aware of what I'm referring to, that bit from the first law of thermodynamics, which in itself, I believe, is a version of the law of conservation of energy, and uh, that states energy can be transformed from one form to another, but can be neither created nor destroyed. And of course, within context, this pertains to the physical sciences, to energy within a closed system, such as heat energy. And it's right in the name of the law, the first law of thermodynamics. And I believe in physics, energy is simply defined as the capacity for doing work. And it refers to, you know, stored energy, kinetic energy, thermal energy, that kind of thing. But people who are into woo often like to adopt or misuse that bit from the first law of thermodynamics or the law of conservation of energy. And once again, this is just me doing my little podcast. Um, I wouldn't say all this to a grieving mother. They can believe whatever gets them through. But I remember being really moved by these stories of loss and thinking to myself that rather than functioning as convincing proof of an afterlife, they kind of seem to function more as a testimony to the potential brutality of existence, in the profound depths of, you know, human loss. People's kids being killed by school buses and crushed by trees. Holy crap, man, you know? And I'm not trying to bum everyone out. Life's filled with wonder and beauty, too. But when you marry stories of human tragedy with unconvincing evidence for belief in afterlife, it just comes across as stories of people who have suffered horrendous loss trying to cope. But okay, so the next episode, and this one is entitled, Seeing Dead People, very spooky. And so at the beginning of this episode, they go into different kinds of ghostly phenomena, including hauntings, and something I've always found kind of intriguing This idea that ghosts may be a kind of place memory or psychic recording, so not a sentient disembodied spirit, but a kind of recording or memory that plays over and over again. Uh, Something to that effect. Not saying I believe that any more than I believe in ghosts in general, uh, but it's a fascinating or thought-provoking idea. And so they follow a couple of paranormal investigators who are, well, investigating a place called the Morris Jummel mansion, I think it is, a historical building in Manhattan that dates back to the 18th century. It's pretty interesting, but supposedly it actually housed both sides uh, during the American Revolution. Uh, A number of high-profile American politicians had stayed or even temporarily lived there, including Aaron Burr, the vice president under Thomas Jefferson during uh, Jefferson's first term. And as much as I enjoyed the bits of history, I have to admit that otherwise I just kind of rolled my eyes at this segment, because it seems like the whole ghost hunter thing has been done to death. No pun intended, death, ghosts. But you know what I mean, we have all these ghost hunter shows, uh, some of them have even produced multiple spin-offs, and they all seem to share the same limited bag of tricks for trying to detect paranormal phenomena. And the quote-unquote evidence is just never really very convincing. And I think I may have seen a number of similar scenarios. But I remember one time, I think it was Zach Baggins. And so he and his crew are going through this dark building. Um, they, I think they might have night vision goggles, but otherwise they're in the dark or whatever, or, or some kind of night vision lighting. And so you can't really see what's going on. But all of a sudden, Zack or a member of his team claim that they were scratched by a ghost or something scratched them. So they turn on the lights, they lift up their shirt, and sure enough, there's scratch marks there. And I'm thinking, and you know, call me cynical, but you could have done that to yourself for all I know, you know? And you're walking around In a dark, derelict building at night, you know, you could have scraped yourself against some wood or nails or rebar, uh, concrete or whatever. And one of your own guys could have accidentally came along and scraped you with some of their equipment. Who knows? Not very convincing uh, evidence. And then you have things like orbs, you know, they show up in photographs and look like these mysterious balls of uh, spirit energy or something. And usually those can just be explained away as being nothing more than motes of dust interacting with flash photography. Cold spots can often be explained away as just normal temperature variation within a house, sometimes caused by, you know, just the design of the house, uh, the positioning of the ductwork, uh, that kind of thing. But there's one particular ghost hunting method or technique that they employ during this segment, And uh, it's a pet peeve of mine. It's uh, trying to capture so-called EVPs, or electronic voice phenomena. And it's a pet peeve just because it should be so transparent what's going on, and yet people still fall for it. But basically, they'll just take a handheld audio recorder and record themselves asking the uh, alleged spirit questions. They'll then go back and listen to the white noise in between questions and see if they hear anything that sounds like a response or like human language. And I remember talking to friend and fellow podcaster Chris Weber about this. I'm actually not sure if he's still podcasting, but he used to host Paranormal Skeptic Academy, where he took on this kind of stuff all the time. And so I remember talking to him about EVPs, electronic voice phenomena, and ain't I so clever? But I, I described it on the fly as kind of the audio equivalent of a Rorschach test, you know? Uh, you're listening to a bunch of static and garbled noise and what exactly it is you think you're hearing is kind of up to the eye, or ear, of the beholder. And often the listener will be primed to hear something in particular. You see this all the time with those Ghost Hunter shows. One investigator will turn to another and say, listen to this, it sounds like a voice saying, you know, fill in the blank. And so they tell the person exactly what to listen for. And it's already been proven that if you take some garbled noise or even a part of a song where the lyrics are easily misinterpreted and tell someone ahead of time what to listen for, their mind is more likely to conform to the interpretation it's been primed to hear. And I'm not sure this is an anecdote that I should necessarily share, but when has that ever stopped me? But it reminds me of when I was a little kid, I was watching SNL, and there was this skit, like a commercial, that was supposed to be advertising an album of songs with misinterpreted lyrics. And till this day, I still can't listen to Stairway to Heaven without hearing the lines, and if you listen very hard, the Jew will come to you at last. And I think at that moment, they show an image of a rabbi or an orthodox Jew walking down the road. Maybe that's just in my sick imagination. I don't know. (laughs) This would have been decades ago. And obviously, it should go without saying No offense intended towards my friends and listeners who happen to be Jewish. And uh, I will resist the temptation to refer to this as a synchronicity. But it's funny that I use the uh, example of Stairway to Heaven, because I mentioned Michael Shermer uh, earlier, and you can watch the TED Talk on YouTube, but when he's talking about pareidolia and this kind of uh, phenomenon where you can prime someone to hear something, he brings up Uh, The backwards masking hysteria, you know, from back in the 80s, although technically I believe Led Zeppelin IV came out in, you know, what, the early 70s. But anyway, there was this hysteria or this uh, paranoid belief that rock bands were intentionally encoding satanic messages in their albums that could only be heard when you played the record backwards. But as an example, he uses Stairway to Heaven, and it is kind of weird and chilling to listen to it, but it is, it's like an audio Rorschach test. And uh, I love the lyrics, though. They're so weird and creepy. This, uh, here's the lyrics that people claim you can hear when you're listening to Stairway to Heaven backwards. <laughs> here's to my sweet Satan, the one whose little path would make me sad, whose power is Satan. He'll give you, give you 666. There was a little tool shed where he made us suffer, sad Satan. And this was intended to be like a really well-polished episode, but here I am about to play something on my iPad. Here it is. Stay the hell away from that tool shed, man. (laughs) I want no part of that. There was a little tool shed where he made us suffer. But anyway, let's return to this segment of the series where we have these paranormal investigators investigating the Morris Jummel house or whatever it is. And so we have this female investigator who's really into... EVPs. And she makes makes it even worse by saying she likes to create extra noise while recording, like letting a faucet run. And they, they actually do that. They just crank open a faucet because it seems to help produce better EVPs. And I'm thinking, of course, you're introducing even more garbled noise to cherry pick from. Oh boy. So this next one is a real doozy. It's the story of a guy named John Huckert, and I kid you not, I'm looking at my notes here, and autocorrect turned the last name Huckert to Huckster. An apt interpretation? Perhaps we'll see. But anyway, uh, John Huckert's father gave him a Polaroid camera for Christmas back in 1991. A Polaroid Spectra to be exact, a kind of instant camera. And it was with this camera that he and others would go on to take a number of eyebrow-raising photographs that are supposedly paranormal in nature. And he describes how he always kind of got an airy feeling from this house he had been living in since the 80s. And supposedly the spectral photography thing all started when the bathroom door, which was prone to getting stuck or dragging on the floor, suddenly swung open by itself with ease. He started taking pictures. At first the only thing strange, you know, that the camera captured were these kind of blurry anomalies, the type of thing we've probably all seen and that could probably happen with, you know, any camera. And if I have the chronology right, he then invited a friend over and showed him the photos. And I think the friend began experimenting with the camera as well And at one point, they ask if there's a spirit there now with them. And the word yes in big letters shows up on the photo. So they proceed to ask more questions, supposedly, you know, inviting more friends and people over to take part, and they start getting full sentences, some of them rather platitudinous in nature, things like, you're not alone anything is possible, listen and you will hear, if you open your mind, you'll open your heart, Uh, little bits of feel-good fortune cookie wisdom. And at one point, I believe the spirit reveals his name to be right, W-R-I-G-H-T. And supposedly, they went to the town hall and found four people with that name remotely associated with the property, but no one by that name seems to have died there. And I have to admit, when I first started watching this segment, and I first saw the photographs with the writing on them, it's like my BS detector just overloaded and exploded. Like there were sirens and blaring alarms going off in my head, and in big red letters the word fake flashing over and over again, you know what I mean? Because the lettering or writing on the photographs is so crisp. It's not a pareidolia situation where you really have to look for it or use your imagination. The lettering is very bright and clear. And I don't think it was done with Photoshop or any type of photo editing or a page layout thing. And I say that as someone who went to school for graphic design and who took a whole course on electronic imaging. For one, I think Adobe Photoshop didn't even come out till maybe around the same time this was happening. And uh, just as a matter of practicality, it doesn't make sense that they'd take a Polaroid and stuff it in a printer or something like that. I'm only referencing Photoshop and page layout software to try to convey just how crisp and clear and, well, man-made the lettering looked. Like if I was going to try to duplicate that, you know, I'd load an image into Photoshop or InDesign, then I'd choose some kind of spooky-looking novelty typeface, you know, some kind of stylized lettering, and I'd type in over the picture, "You are not alone." Or it kind of looked like that. That's how contrived it looked. But I had the feeling that, however this end result was achieved, these Polaroids with writing on them or in them. That the process probably had something to do with the film itself or the camera. And that however it was done, the words were appearing during the developing process. And, you know, they weren't etched in or something like that after the fact. And so I was thinking that the simplest and most likely explanation would probably be that just like many of the fraudulent photos produced during the heyday of the uh, spiritualist movement, these also were probably produced by using some kind of double exposure technique. Uh, You can even find step-by-step instructions online for how to make double exposure images with a Polaroid spectra, specifically Uh, the same camera used to take the photos in question. But I went online to try to do some further research on these photos, and it actually ended up leading me to a YouTube video. Someone had uploaded an entire episode of an old TV show from the 90s called Sightings. And looking back, it seems like a lot of shows back in the day had this same kind of format. These kind of investigative journalism shows, even if they were covering kind of fringe topics, you have like a well-seasoned anchorman for a host, and he kind of narrates or introduces the segments. So they send a whole team to John Huckert's house. The team consisted of a paranormal investigator named Kerry Gaynor, who is known for his involvement in the case that was the basis for the movie The Entity. And of course, there was the camera crew, and then there was also a photo expert. I think he was also a special effects expert, specifically from the Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, California. And it seems like his job on the team was to try to make sure everything was on the up and up and that no one was manipulating the film, etc. Also present were some of Huckert's friends who had also supposedly experienced some of this uh, spectral photography or ghost writing. And if I didn't already clearly state it, the objective of this investigation was to try to see if they could capture instances of this ghost writing under controlled conditions. So maybe a little weird that his friends were there. You know, does that potentially threaten the integrity of the experiment or investigation? So Kerry Gaynor starts off by walking around the house with a magnetometer. Maybe I'm being uncharitable, but struck me as kind of silly. A lot of these gadgets utilized by ghost hunter types actually have legitimate uses, but then often they go on to employ them in some pseudoscientific capacity. But then things quickly get more interesting when they actually start taking photos. And it's at this point that the host or narrator claims researchers are on site to try to prevent or minimize the possibility of a hoax, and that there are four cameras on site. I believe they said four. And when I say cameras, I'm not referring to the camera crew. I'm referring to instant cameras that are there for the specific purpose of trying to capture instances of ghostwriting or spectral photography as a part of this experiment or investigation. And he also states that there are supposedly unopened packs of film directly from Polaroid and that everything has been checked and rechecked and carefully logged. And so a female friend of Huckert's, whose name is Martha, and I think her affectionate nickname is Marty, uh, last name Elkin, I believe, was the first to snap a picture and before doing so, she asked the question, are there good spirits or bad spirits? And the subsequent photo develops with a message on it, reading, there are numerous remedial lemures. And so I've read a monster manual or two in my day. I'm a mythology buff. So I already knew what lemures are. Uh, there are a certain kind of spirit of the dead in Roman mythology. And it's also where one of my favorite animals, the lemur, uh, got their name. Supposedly, their nocturnal nature and strange appearance reminded the person who named them of the shades of the dead from Roman myth and literature. And I actually just looked it up. Couldn't resist this digression. Uh, It was Swedish zoologist Carl Linnaeus, I think that's how you pronounce it, who named them in the 18th century. Apparently, it was the Slender Loris in particular that initially inspired the name. Then it became a kind of umbrella term or classification. He lumped the red Slender Loris, the Ring-tailed Lemur, and the Philippine kalugo I have no idea. Under the genus Lemur. Okay, weird digression, I know. Anyway, so she asked if the spirit or spirits were good or bad. And the answer was, once again, there are numerous remedial lemurs, or lemur, <laughs> Remedial lemurs. Remedial lemurs. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. Uh, remedial. Anyway, kind of a bizarre answer, but kind of makes sense, but also a bit strangely worded, like something you'd spell out with fridge magnets at 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, but, but the impressive thing is that she took a photo and an image appeared. That, you know, right there in the presence of the, uh, the crew and investigators. And then the same friend, Marty, takes another photo, this time asking how long the spirits will be with them. And I should have uh, stated this earlier, but John Huckert has, I don't know if it's his partner or if it's just a roommate, but he, at least at the time, had another dude living with him. And so she asks how long the spirit or spirits, you know, plan on being with them. And another message appears, this time it's in Latin, and when translated reads something like, this is all over now. And this Marty person seems genuinely surprised by the results, so if it's a hoax, I don't get the feeling that she was directly involved. But I remember thinking, why Latin? That seems a little fishy to me. Latin is like the language you'd choose if you wanted to make it seem a bit more spooky or mysterious. This dead language used in religious rites, etc. But if you were a ghost of someone who died, you know, in a house in modern America, why would you suddenly go from English to Latin? But still pretty spooky, messages are seemingly appearing before everyone's eyes, and the uh, even the photography expert seems to be a little spooked or perplexed himself. He's watching the photos eject from the camera, and he's seeing the messages develop. He seemed particularly freaked by one of the images where he's in it, and he sees this message mysteriously scrawled across a photo that he's in. And he states that he's starting to think there might be quote-unquote something in the house. Then they go on to take a bunch of control photos, and they're all duds. None of them, you know, have any messages. But then, all of a sudden, another message appears. This time, the message is ad literum, meaning to the word or letter. The question being, what do you think of our modern technology as opposed to the technology of your day? I'm not even sure they ever established when this guy died. So kind of a weird response to that question. And so I had been thinking to myself while watching this that if there is some kind of manipulation going on, maybe it's someone creating or supplying kind of generic answers so there's more flexibility as to whether it can be interpreted as working as a response or not. Uh, If you're too specific, the response might not fit. So kind of like a magic eight ball thing going on, you know? And then someone asks, why are you here? And the response is genius loci, or genius loci, not sure what the proper Latin pronunciation is, which they interpret as meaning a kind of guardian spirit of a person or place. And I was somewhat familiar with the term, but I have to admit I wasn't sure of the exact definition, But when I looked it up, what I got was the presiding spirit or atmosphere of a place or the presiding god of a place. It's also a term used in architecture to refer to, as I was just saying, the kind of spirit or atmosphere of a building or place. So it does work as a response. Kinda, I guess, but terms like ad literum and genius loci are fairly common Latin terms. So once again, could they have been provided beforehand, the answers being somehow etched into the film? Or would that really have been impossible due to the supposed watchful eye of the uh, crew or team? And so ultimately, the film and the quote-unquote camera, I put camera in quotes because the narrator or presenter says camera, singular, whereas I thought there you know, had been at least four cameras being used. But maybe I got the number wrong. Maybe it was four packs of film and just one camera. I'm not sure. But anyway, the film and the camera are sent to the Brooks Institute for further investigation by the photo expert who had been on the scene. Uh, He scans the images into a computer and at high resolution discovers that there seem to be fibers or hairs in the messages and finally identifies them as cotton fibers. And so he goes through the steps so quickly that it was a little hard to follow. But using this kind of long, involved process, he was able to create a message by using cotton to pull at the surface of a certain part of the film. Then layers everything back, loads the film into the camera, takes a picture... And there you can see a message develops, and the word he chose was the name of the show, Sightings. So there's a Polaroid photo that looks just like one of Huckert's photos with the word sightings across it. So he proved you can reproduce the effect by manipulating the film ahead of time and then taking a picture. But as I was saying, it's a relatively long and involved process, taking about an hour altogether, I believe. So it's one possible explanation, but how likely is it that this particular method was used that night, seeing as fresh packs of film were supposedly being used? But like I was saying, perhaps relatively generic answers or messages, bits of Latin phrases, etc., could have been embedded in the film beforehand via that method or one similar. And we know that Huckert's friend or partner was also there, he had friends there. And there was even that long streak of control photos that were taken where there's no messages, then suddenly another message. It's possible with all the people there and everything that when the right opening presented itself that a stealthy person could have, you know, loaded some prepared film into uh, the camera or cameras. And then someone snaps a picture and the prepared message develops on the photo. And then later in that same episode of Sightings, they send a psychic to Huckert's house, and he's able to correctly guess the names of some of the people who had been connected to the house in the past. But hey, he could have gone to the town hall or hall of records beforehand and found the names just like Huckert had done. Uh, That one doesn't seem as impressive to me as the messages seeming to appear under controlled or supposedly controlled conditions. And then I found this next segment pretty interesting, but I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I feel like there just isn't that much to say. But it's about people having visions of deceased loved ones as they themselves near death. And so the man featured in this segment is a hospice doctor named Chris Kerr. Kind of this big, burly, older guy in a pickup truck who drives to the homes of -of end-of-life patients to check on them, and he also kind of collects their stories. You know, these stories of people seeing dead loved ones as they near the end. So in a way, it sounds kind of ghoulish when I word it that way, but he actually seems like a pretty good guy. And with his burly frame and pickup truck, he kind of reminds me of a building inspector I know. And so personally, I think this phenomenon he's investigating is a real phenomenon and that people near the end do have quote-unquote visions of deceased loved ones. The question, I guess, is are they supernatural or psychological in nature? Maybe there could even be a kind of neurochemical thing going on. And I put visions in quotation marks because I notice that sometimes when he's talking to the patients, because they film him kind of interviewing real patients for the show, they're referring to these events as dreams taking place during sleep. And other times it's hard to tell if they're talking about sleeping or waking experiences. And a couple of times, in fairness, they clearly do seem to be talking about something someone's seeing while awake. Like an elderly woman seeing a deceased loved one sitting on the edge of her bed. And I know it's really heavy, but at one point they're talking to a kid who's dying of cancer. She's maybe in her early teens or something like that. Uh, To be honest, I'm pretty bad at guessing kids' ages. But she was having visions of her dog that had passed away. And once again, um, I don't know if this was something that was happening while she was asleep or awake, but they suggest in the show that since kids often haven't lost anyone yet, that they've had a really strong bond with just because they haven't been alive as long to, you know, lose people, they often instead have visions of deceased pets. But then I was thinking to myself that, you know, what seems weird is is if these are genuine supernatural experiences where people are actually encountering the spirits of dead relatives, Why wouldn't children, similar to some NDE accounts, encounter dead relatives they never had the chance to meet? And maybe in some cases they do, to be fair, but that was just something that occurred to my skeptical brain while I was watching that particular segment. But if an afterlife does exist, they better let dogs in. Or to quote Will Rogers, If there are no dogs in heaven, then when I die, I want to go where they went. But it makes sense to me that people who are aware that they're nearing the end, that their minds would turn to deceased loved ones and thoughts of perhaps being reunited with them in an afterlife. Whether these are genuine supernatural experiences or not, you know me, I'm a skeptic. But I like to leave the door open just a little to the possibility that I might be wrong. Uh, Either way, I think these are still very meaningful experiences, for the people having them, and they probably provide them with some well-deserved comfort in their final days. Oh yeah, there's this kind of funny, candid moment at the end of that episode. The interviewer off-camera asks the doctor, uh, Chris Kerr, if he believes in an afterlife, you know, personally, or if other people ask him that question, and he curses and says, oh shit, (laughs) he says that he hates that question or something to that effect. And saying, and I'm paraphrasing, that ironically, despite the type of research he's doing, he's not really someone who's interested in spirituality, doesn't even like horoscopes or that kind of thing. Uh, But ends with saying that after studying the experiences of -of end-of-life patients for 20 years, he or you would be a fool not to believe there's something more. Uh, his take, not mine, but I think it is a phenomenon that does deserve to be taken seriously and researched further. And then finally, we get to the last of the six episodes, and this one focuses on reincarnation. And so this episode is proving to be so long, and not this episode of surviving death, this episode of The Week in Doubt, I mean, uh, that I'm having trouble remembering what little things I may have already have mentioned or gone over. But I believe I did already mention that episode I did on reincarnation several years back, In my plan to re-release it after I get this episode out, if I ever do. But the specific focus of that episode, as I think I already stated, was the reincarnation research of Ian Stevenson. And I bring that up again because the reincarnation episode of Surviving Death features a researcher by the name of Jim Tucker, who I believe was Ian Stevenson's protege, and kind of took up uh, his, Stevenson's, mantle after he passed, including, I believe, his role at the University of Virginia's Division of Perceptual Studies. And a part of Jim Tucker's reincarnation research involves investigating cases of children who have possibly had past lives, interviewing the children, etc., and then following their progress as they get older. And according to Tucker, and I think I've heard other researchers say the same thing, Supposedly, there's a small window of time, maybe in between roughly two to three years of age, where the past life recollections are the strongest or most vivid and where the children, you know, really begin to talk about them. And then they kind of start to fade away by age six or seven and the children kind of move on. And so the first case they discuss in the episode is that of a five-year-old boy named Atlas. Supposedly around one and a half, uh, he began having night terrors, screaming for up to ten hours at a time, according to his mother, and apparently this went on for years. And then one day, supposedly, and if any of you out there have actually been taking a drink every time I say supposedly, Your blood alcohol level. I mean, you guys are just out by now. But anyway, uh, one day he says that he misses when his mom took him to the playground. And this confuses his mother, the mother of this incarnation. And she asks him if he means her. And he specifies, paraphrasing, no, my old mom. And then goes on to say that his mom's name was Washington and his name was Jalen. And that someone killed him. So according to the story, the mom finds the exact names in the obituaries. There was a boy named Jalen Robinson who had been killed by his babysitter, Cherry Stuff, and his mother's name was Kareen Washington, I believe. And so this boy Jalen was killed in 2005, and Atlas was born in 2014, so about a nine-year gap. Look at the math skills on me. And I remember kind of irreverently thinking, "Uh uh-oh, cultural appropriation. Uh, Atlas and his mom are white, and Jalen and his mom were black. Uh, But if a case like this is fake, then there is something kind of perverse or offensive about the idea of taking someone else's, you know, a specific individual's death, their legacy or memory, and using it to spice up your own narrative. I think I failed to mention this, but I was just looking through my notes, and Jim Tucker is also a child psychiatrist, which I think is a good thing. It certainly makes him more well-suited to this kind of research, whether you believe in reincarnation or not. And so Jim Tucker goes to the home of Atlas and his mom so he can interview him. And I think he asks the mother some questions as well, like if she comes from a family that believes in reincarnation, she says no, that she comes from a Christian background and her family wants nothing to do with this whole idea that her son may be reincarnated. I believe she says that they actually think that it might even be indicative that there's something demonic going on. And not to digress, again, but that reminds me of my own upbringing. I had kind of an old-school Catholic upbringing, and we weren't supposed to mess with tarot cards, Ouija boards, anything involving spirits that wasn't Christian or Catholic in nature. So I'm not surprised her family had that reaction, but I think he was obviously asking her that specific question because he was trying to rule out the possibility that she may have unduly influenced her son by personally exposing him to the idea of reincarnation or past lives. Tucker goes on to test Atlas by showing him a series of pictures. Each time he has the choice of picking one of two images held up side by side. For example, he was given a choice between two images of houses, one an image of Jalen Robinson's old house and the other a control image. According to Tucker, Atlas got five out of five right. And so if that's accurate, that he did in fact get 5 out of 5 right, that's pretty impressive. And for added context, some of the other questions or choices were a choice between Jalen's mother and a control picture of another woman, a picture of the park where Jalen supposedly used to play, and yet another control picture. And I remember thinking to myself the first time watching this testing going on that perhaps it should have been a little more difficult, maybe more than two choices per question or that kind of thing. I also found myself wondering if he may have already been exposed to some of these images via the internet, maybe his mother researching his quote-unquote past life with him online, showing him pictures of Jalen's mother or where they used to live, that kind of thing. Not even necessarily with an attempt to deceive anyone, if she really believes the narrative that her son is reincarnated, she may have wanted to show him aspects of his old life online, we already know she sought out the obituaries and that kind of thing. And if you're a believer listening to this, believe it or not, eh, no pun intended, I'm trying to be fair, you know, but uh, another one of those frustrating cases where on the surface the story seems pretty impressive, but there's still unanswered questions and unknown variables like whether or not he had been coached at all prior. I don't want to be that overly skeptical person that I described or warned about at the beginning, who's unwilling to accept evidence from the other side, no matter how persuasive. But, you know, I still have my doubts, and I'm just being honest about it. And I have to admit, I don't know nearly as much about Native American culture as I would like, but I've always been drawn to it. I've always loved the aesthetic. I've always loved the the artwork. Uh, I know something about um, Native American spirituality, uh, some of the lore, that kind of thing. But as as someone who does have an interest in Native American culture, I found this next story to be pretty interesting. And just a brief disclaimer, I don't want to come across as being ignorant or insensitive. I know things like aesthetic, art style, beliefs can vary greatly between tribes or peoples. But anyway, generally speaking, you know what I mean. So the episode moves on to focus on a young Native American man, perhaps in his teens or early 20s, I'm not sure, by the name of Alex Stoney, who's believed by his tribe to be the reincarnation of Head Chief Albert Tate. And so I believe it was Alex Stoney's grandmother who saw a vision of Tate, possibly in a dream, when Alex Stoney's mother was still pregnant with him. And both individuals have the same first name, Alex, so hopefully things don't get too confusing. And then I think it was the grandmother again who noticed that young Alex would stare at his hands as a small child, as if in wonder or amazement. And she took this as yet another sign that he was the reincarnation of Alex Tate, because Tate had lost multiple fingers in one or more work accidents and the grandmother thought her young grandson staring in amazement at his own hands was actually the reincarnated Tate, marveling at the fact that he had all of his fingers once again. And then Alex Stoney himself describes how Head Chief Tate knew everyone in the community, and how as a child, he was able to escort everyone in the meeting hall to their proper seats, as if he possessed Chief Tate's knowledge of who was who. And Alex Stoney seems like a really nice young guy. I love seeing all the Native American art and architecture on display in his community during the segment, and I actually found something really charming about the story. But you guessed it, I'm still skeptical or have my doubts. I really liked the idea of the reincarnated Alex Tate marveling at the fact that he had a full set of fingers again. But obviously, very small children in general tend to do things like play with their fingers, opening and closing their hands, that kind of thing. So as charming as the story is, as evidence, it's not that persuasive. And the thing about leading everyone to their seats, who knows, maybe it was one of those stories that grew over time and became more and more impressive upon subsequent retellings. But the thing about the hands, it kind of reminds me of these stories you hear about. I think Ian Stevenson collected a lot of these, where reincarnated persons or people will often have birthmarks or deformities that supposedly correspond with injuries sustained in their past lives. Once again, I'm skeptical, um, and yet I think it's a really fascinating idea. But for the sake of time, let's skip right to what is possibly the most compelling or convincing of the reincarnation stories featured in this series. And some of you may already be familiar with this one. It's a story often touted or put forward by believers in reincarnation due to how compelling or convincing it seems. And I think I may have also touched on this story in that old reincarnation episode I mentioned earlier. But it's the story of James Leiniger, I think that's how you pronounce it, a boy who is supposedly the reincarnation of James M. Houston, a World War II fighter pilot who died when his plane was shot down by the Japanese during Iwo Jima. And Jim Tucker is involved in the case, too. And it's funny, I remember when I first heard about this story, I think the kid was still really young, and now he's a big dude with facial hair. I found an old article on the case dating back to 2006, and I think it states he was six years old at the time. So he'd be in his early 20s now, I believe. And so the story goes that when James was a small boy, he loved toy airplanes but then started having violent nightmares that he was trapped in a burning plane. His mother recalls him repeating the words, Airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. When asked who the little man was, he answered James. Seeing as his name was James, his mother didn't think it was too unusual, but he would go on to say that he was the quote-unquote, Third James. Supposedly, he told his father that he had served on the Natoma and was shot down by the Japanese over Iwo Jima. And I believe the full or proper name of the vessel is the Natoma Bay. It was a small aircraft carrier. But his father researched the Natoma Bay and found that a fighter pilot by the name of James M. Houston had served aboard the vessel. The pilot's name was technically James M. Houston, Jr., making young James Leiniger the quote-unquote Third James. Furthermore, James had supposedly claimed prior to his father's research that he had had a best friend in his previous life by the name of Jack Larson. His father discovered that there had indeed been an assistant armaments officer on board the Natoma Bay by that very name. There are other spooky tidbits like James supposedly saying he felt like there were two people living inside of him, and his supposedly being able to name all the different planes in an aviation museum at the age of five or six. So once again, we have one of these frustrating stories where, if taken at face value, it seems pretty darn impressive. Yet it's hard not to have lingering doubts. Things like, is everyone involved remembering the timeline or order of events correctly? Could James have acquired some of the more impressive bits of knowledge after his father had already begun his research? And along those lines, I was actually reading a transcript from a Skeptoid episode on the topic, and rightly or wrongly, Brian Dunning, the host of Skeptoid, suggests that James's father actually poured through a book entitled The Battle for Iwo Jima with him. I'll read this excerpt. Another thing James had in common with many toddlers was recurring nightmares. His, not surprisingly given his favorite toys, was that he was in an airplane that was crashing. He'd cry and scream and wake his parents. Sometimes it would happen five times a week. James's mother, Andrea, began to suspect that the nightmare was so traumatic because it had an extraordinary cause. Perhaps James had lived it in another life. By the time James was two and a half, he'd said the man crashing in the plane was named James and that the plane was a Corsair. A famous WW2 fighter plane in the Pacific. His parents reported that he even gave a partial name for the aircraft carrier he'd been on the USS Natoma Bay, an actual World War II escort carrier. Eventually, Andrea got a hold of a book on children who had lived past lives and studied it. While his father, Bruce, obsessively went through World War II records, trying to piece together the bits little James had offered into a consistent narrative. Bruce garnered further details from James by going through the book, The Battle for Iwo Jima, with him. Their conviction that Little James had been a Corsair pilot named James from the Natoma Bay, who was shot down at Iwo Jima, was so strong that they even took him to a reunion of crew from the Natoma Bay. Eventually, the Leiningers wrote a 2009 book promoting their son as an actual case of reincarnation, titled Soul Survivor, S-O-U-L. Although they clearly believe their son was reincarnated, the weaknesses in the story are apparent to the skeptical mind. All of the evidence is purely anecdotal and is practically the gold standard of confirmation bias and observational selection. The story as the public knows it was written by the parents themselves after nearly a decade of personally trying to confirm and prove their belief. Reading their book, I marveled that the only proof they gave over and over again is that there is no way a three-year-old could have have had knowledge of aircraft carriers or known the names of specific fighter planes. That's an insult to every three-year-old who ever lived. So that's the end of that skeptoid excerpt. And then here's an excerpt from a CBS article which discusses how James' mother fairly early on turned to a counselor slash therapist who believes in reincarnation and whose advice may have led James's mother to reinforce or encourage the idea that he had a past life. Okay, so here it is. Then James's violent nightmares got worse, occurring three and four times a week. Three and four? Shouldn't it be three or four? Anyway, Andrea's mother suggested she look into the work of counselor and therapist Carol Bowman, who believes that the dead sometimes can be reborn. With guidance from Bowman, they began to encourage James to share his memories. And immediately, Andrea says, the nightmares started to become less frequent. James was also becoming more articulate about his apparent past, she said. Bowman said James was at the age when former lives are most easily recalled. And here's a quote They haven't had the cultural conditioning, the layering over the experience in this life, so the memories can percolate up more easily, she said. And so, once again, to reiterate, we have yet another story that seems spooky or impressive on the surface, but when you really dig down, you find that there's still, you know, plenty of room for doubt. And guess what? That concludes this episode of The Week in Doubt. As always, thank you for listening. And you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, you can follow the show on Twitter, you can check out the YouTube channel, maybe you're doing that now, and if you'd like to support what I do here monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekindoubt and support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.